Hey everybody, this month's episode of the Raw Talks Through Podcast is brought to you by Elf Creek Games. And oh my goodness, folks, buckle up, because this is going to be a bumpy ride of an episode. Some very um, hot topics came up in both the gaming section, which is what the first half of this podcast will be, and then the personal section as well. And of folks... You know how this works. If you have any questions, maybe follow-ups to what we're about to talk about or just about anything, please email them to questions at rotto.com so we can keep this uh, train on the tracks or something like that. Anyway, I'm exhausted and uh, I got to get editing this thing together. So let's get to it. Okay, folks, we are back, and we're starting with Daniel, who uh, opens with Luck in Co-Ops Part 6, which I thought we were done, Daniel. Wasn't, like, last time the final chapter? Anyway, um, this is the time travel to go back to the original question, since after five months, we veered off the beaten path, since I didn't mean to imply that Die Avatar leads to a certain loss, just that it leads to the possibility of a loss during an otherwise near-perfect playthrough. Okay, folks, I always have to remember, this might be the first time you've ever seen this show and you're wondering, what the heck is all this about? This is a ongoing conversation between me and Daniel about a particular card in Aeon's End called Dire Abattoir, which Daniel believes is unfairly punishing to players and which I do not agree with him at all. I think it's just a fun and challenging card that you have to overcome like many, many other cards. Anyway, though, uh, so... With that context, let's continue with Daniel's point. Why do designers feel the need to insert cards like the one in Shadowrun Crossfire that you mentioned? Right, and so Daniel's referring to a different card that I said, oh, you, you want a bad card, Daniel? Let me show you a real bad card. And, I mean, it's one of the very, very few truly awful cards I've seen. Um, I, I mean, that... The, all the examples Daniel had do not show, uh, you know, hold a, hold a candle to one hot minute from Shadowrun Crossfire as a game that is pure, purely mathematically designed to be twice as powerful damaging wise to players as anything else in the game. Um, you know, and it's 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 obvious to see. It's literally um, written up that way, uh, as opposed to Dire Abattoir, which basically says, "Oh, if you can't stop the effect of this, uh, your character gets um, KO'd," which is not that big a deal in Aeon's End because you keep fighting. It it, it doesn't end the game at all. Anyway, um, continuing with Daniel. I've seen such cards, a, a cards that can wreck your game no matter how well you're doing, in lots of otherwise fairly balanced uh, low luck games. See, again, Daniel, we're never going to get to the end of this, buddy, because you said in an otherwise nearly perfect playthrough, the dire avatar can cause you to lose. If that card by itself causes you to lose and there's nothing you can do about it, you did not play a nearly perfect game. I would go so far as to say you were not even doing very well. If you were in a state where, because one player went from, let's say, worst case scenario, full health to zero health, which doesn't take them out of the game in any way, shape, or form. It just means that your protected city is going to take more damage in the future. It doesn't even take it immediately. If that one relatively... I mean, Aeon's End is designed for players to get knocked out over time. You're supposed to get knocked out. You, I, I'm kind of feeling, Daniel, that you think that you have failed if anybody ever gets KO'd in Aeon's End. When I would suggest that means if most of the time, Daniel, if you don't run across Dire Abattoir and um, you... and none of your teammates fall down to zero hit points at any point, 
you need to bump up to the next difficulty level. You and your group are ready for it, Daniel, because you are playing um, the game with kid with uh, training wheels on. The game is supposed to hit you hard enough that by the end you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just I'm like I've said this a million times, like John McClane at the end of Die Hard, just barely pulling myself to the end because everybody except for one person has been KO'd and the city is on the brink of destruction, and then we do that last win. That's the experience you should be happening. You're not having that experience if you make it all the way through and nobody got KO'd. Um, you know, I, 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 you and I have a fundamentally different vision of what a an exciting cooperative experience should be. Quite frankly, anyway, though I'm continuing with your point. Uh, all right, so why include these? If it's tension, other cards do that. I remember several. Oh my God, were doomed cards in Aeon's End, but none of those were as frustrating as Dire Avatars. A quote: Wow, I'm dead, and I was at full health. So exciting. Yeah, yeah. Again, um, you're not dead. You're not dead. You get to keep playing. None of your toys have been taken away. It just means in the future, the damage that would be dealt to you instead gets dealt to the city, um, Gravehold. And it just means you and your teammates have to change your tactics because you have to ensure that you, Daniel, take no more damage. That other people step in. That you don't equally divide the damage amongst everybody because you, for one card, have become a weak link in the team that everybody else has to supplement. And therefore, it enhances the opportunity for teamwork. That, to answer your question, is why it's there. To change the overall flow and tenor and um, uh, you know, experience that you would otherwise have if, oh, no, no, we just always make sure that everybody takes an equal amount of damage, everybody pays an equal amount of mana, and we always make sure that you know, if, if one of us dies, we might as well just quit playing right now. You're... You're playing a different game than the game as designed. So, um, but anyway, and it's the game as designed. It's that design that these games, ex- that these cards exist to create moments of challenge and difficulty for you to overcome. Anyway, though, uh, these cards seem to bring only feelings of frustration, and I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. But I mean, Daniel, I would agree 100%. If there was a card, if Dire Abattoir or any card like it literally said. Pick one player. That player puts away their deck of cards, gets up, and walks away from the table. Now, no matter what the circumstances are, that would be a horrific, terrible card. That is what you're saying Dire Abattoir is, except it's by definition not that. It's something else. And I appreciate you're frustrated, and so my answer to you is, dude, just... Keep it out of the deck. It's easy. It's not hard to do at all. But if you do insist on keeping in the deck, bear in mind, you shouldn't be frustrated. You just be, oh my gosh, I just lost se- I just lost 10 hit points. I went from 10 to 0. Oh my gosh. And the city only has 5 hit points. What are we going to do now? That's when you as a team pull together and um, overcome the seemingly impossible. And that's a truly heroic moment. Taken from a different perspective, looking at it as an opportunity to rise above adversity should instill within you a, wow, how are we going to do this? Okay, guys, let's get our craft together and, and do this thing. That's what it should do. Now, there's nothing, I mean, if, if instead it creates in you a feeling of, oh, this is garbage, I hate this game, Dude, just remove the card from the game. There's 50 billion other cards. One card less isn't going to matter one way or the other. That would be my suggestion. But anyway, that, that's my best answer 
as best I can, as a former game developer and designer myself, as to why a card like that would exist. And by the way, everything I just said is equally true for one hot minute. I, um, I mean, I, I don't like one hot minute. It does feel unfair, but you know what? Often, you know, you know, you know who else thought it was unfair? Uh, Luke Skywalker when Darth Vader chopped his hand off. Luke thought that was pretty unfair. Um, and did you say, ah, I'm frustrated, I refuse to fight anymore? No. He found strength within himself to overcome and continue fighting. Dire Evertois is your pan chopped off. Look at it that way, and maybe you will find it creates a more rich and compelling tapestry of an experience for you, Daniel. Maybe. And if not, just take it out of the box. Alrighty. B- burn it on a pure uh, on a funeral pyre. Um, you know, get your revenge on it. You know, uh, you know, you know, get some satisfaction out of it. Anyway, uh, number two for Daniel, related to question one, I mentioned uh, boss attack modifier cards in Marvel Champions that make uh, one discard their allies. Daniel says, "Am I right in assuming that uh, you find that card annoying?" But don't find Dire Avatar card annoying. If yes, why? No, I don't find that card annoying. I, I don't. I really don't. I, I, it's not a problem at all. I mean, I had to think long and hard for a card that I think maybe crosses the line. One hot minute does. And even in, in the, the reality, one hot minute really crosses the line for me on an intellectual level. I have come across one hot minute in gameplay. And it in and of itself did not destroy me. And I was able to continue to go on and persevere, or at the very least, pull off an abort, which is the kind of like a half win, which I love, was one of the things I love about Shadowrun Crossfire. So no, it doesn't bother me. doesn't bother me at all. I mean, Marvel Champions, by its very nature, is a game of attrition. The bad guy loses their allies all the time. I lose my allies all the time. The only thing that really bugs me about Marvel Champions is... Unlike Aeon's End, which will put something on the table and then give you time to respond to it. it will create a problem for you to solve. And maybe you can't solve it. Or maybe you'll say, you know what? Uh, we're going to live with that. You're, or you know what? Okay, that thing's going to hit somebody. Let's um, let's make sure that uh, you know we let that person get hit by a bunch of other stuff first so it doesn't bother us so much when it eventually hits us. See, or you're just kind of creating opportunities. Marvel Champions doesn't do that. Marvel Champions just says, draw a card, reveal it, and do whatever it says. And that's why one of the many reasons that Aeon's End is a superior title to Marvel Champions. But the act, I mean, your allies in Marvel Champions are there as meat shields. They are there specifically to be set up and knocked out and come back over and over again. Never mind the fact that a card like that in Marvel Champions may uh, very well be going up against human or a, a hero, I should say, who has no allies. You can make very strong... I mean, some heroes don't do well with allies because they're loners. And then that card is meaningless and you just discard it and draw the next one. So no, it doesn't bother me at all. In the same way Dire Avatar doesn't bother me because all it does is create a more interesting and compelling narrative. The thing I always loved about Marvel Champions more than anything else is that it created those really exciting, pivotal, dramatic comic book moments that I loved growing up. And uh, and that's a card that does that. If Falcon is taken out because there's an earthquake um, on the other side of town and he has to go off and save them, and so oh, instantly he has to go off and do it, to me that's like, wow, what a really cool twist in the story that's being told by this game. I don't look at it as, wow, this game is unfair and I don't like it. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as, whoa, that's an exciting twist. All right. 
Question three. Games uh, that you wouldn't play are war games like Advanced Squad Leader and Path of Glory. Good examples of games you wouldn't play or at least the games that you would try probably quit halfway through. Very much so. It's funny. Actually, Daniel, this is a follow-up to uh, when when I went through that list. ASL. I couldn't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but I was certain ASL, Advanced Squad Leader, was in the Board Game Geek Top 100. That was the specific game I was looking for to um, try to use as an example. And I, apparently it's not even the top 300, because then I go through like the first and the second and the third page, but I, mean, I, I couldn't find anything until the second page. So yeah, uh, honestly, boy... It would be a really weird circumstance that somebody could convince me to play those games because I have I have active disinterest in the subject matter, the glorification of war and death and suffering, um, for, you know, with nothing deeper and more meaningful to say other than, wow, war is really cool and exciting and fun, isn't it? When we shoot off big guns and, and kill lots of people and dismember them. I mean, I, I find the entire subject matter... I, I, don't ma- I, I don't blame anybody who enjoys it. Hey, I, I, I'm a hypocrite. I love violent action movies, but um, to me, taking to the next step, and I mean, I've made violent first-person shooters, but I guess it's a scale thing. Um, you know, taking it to you know the, the raw inhumanity meat grinder of you know modern warfare with big guns and all that, and, 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 and rejoicing when I have personally um, you know just taken out all your troops. And to me, I look at that, and that represents you know. Um, mothers and daughters and wives and brothers and uncles and aunts and friends who have lost their loved one. That's how I look at that moment. I often look at moments in, in I mean, I often, um, you know, if after John McClane shoots a bunch of bad guys, if there's ever a moment where it's like, oh my God, I got to catch my breath or, you know, in any kind of action sequence, my brain always immediately goes to the, wow, Hans was a kid once. He was a sweet little adorable kid. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, the, the I think it's the original Austin Powers movie made a joke about this that you know Austin Powers just you know dispatched some nameless henchman and then it cut to a scene of the call that the henchman's wife and kids gets at home to say oh your husband was killed by some you know weird toothed British secret agent and how it destroyed her life um, I don't think of that scene that often but it's an indelible way I look at violence in any form of entertainment um, yeah. I, I I tend to look at the villains as what brought them to here. Why are they doing this? Are you know are they are they unwitting dupes? Are you know were were they socially conditioned to believe this? What how did they turn from a sweet innocent child full of love and wonder into cannon fodder for John McClane? You know I mean I I tend to look through everything through that lens. It doesn't mean I can't enjoy the, you know the visceral thrills and uh, you know the or the action, but yeah. So there's one thing when it's just on a low uh, mono mono scale, but then when you take it up to war level stuff, it's just it's just too much for me. And then on top of that, they're so overburdened with ridiculously Byzantine rules to as accurately as possible represent every single facet of these horrific human tragedies that we are supposed to wallow in and enjoy. I just can't do it. I, I, I yeah, but you're right. Yes, those are perfect examples. And I was just shocked they weren't in the top 100. Question four. Looking at the Board Game Geek Top 100 or 200, what are the best design games, in your opinion, that you played that you didn't like or found they're not for you? That's a good question. Let's do that. Let's go back to the Board Game Geek. Let's all go to Board Game Geek. And um, let's see. Go to BGG. And where is it? It's Those are my shortcuts. No, no. It's Browse. Browse all board games. Let's just start from the beginning. And let's see. You were specifically asking... 
the best game that I've played that just doesn't work for me in gen. So, uh, actually, I'm not going to go here. Instead, I'm going to go to gone.rado.com, which is a... I'm not perfect. I don't always get every single game listed on here, but I try to make sure I make a note of why I get rid of every game I get rid of. So... Uh, I have got that. It is by, or I need to default sort it by board game rank. And you know what? Brass Birmingham. Um, although, I mean, yeah, let's skip that one. Terraforming Mars uh, is the sixth highest ranked game on Board Game Geek. And yeah, it's not for me. So it's probably Terraforming Mars then, right? Putting aside AI art and all that, which I know there's questions coming for that in a little bit. Um, now, all that aside. And Dune Imperium, number seven. I, I, okay. Mm, no, but no. You're asking, what do I think is the best design? Do I think terraforming Mars? So, okay, then just to narrow it down a little bit, let's just look at the BGG top 30 games, all right? Just to try and keep this a little bit under control. And of the to- BGG top 30 that I got rid of, because it's right here at gone.rao.com, easy to see, what do I think is the best design and why? Ooh, okay, so you've got Brass Birmingham. The reason I got rid of that is to make room on shelves. And also because there's been a few things. Carnegie is one, and now Cargo Empire is another, that's really making me fundamentally rethink my appreciation of route building games, or maybe my lack of appreciation. I'm this close to getting rid of Railways of the World as well, uh, which I'll have to talk about some other time. Folks, by all means, ask me a question. Send it to questions at raw.com and we'll talk about it next month because that's not what we're talking about right now. Terraforming Mars. Uh, obviously, I got rid of it because of the... Uh, no, I mean, Terraforming Mars is definitely not the best. Putting aside the fact that I do not like smashing an asteroid into your stuff to destroy your things. I hate that. My bigger issue with Terraforming Mars has always been, as I say right here, that the two-player scaling is awful. Or there, I should say there is a complete and total lack. Or did I say this? No, I didn't. Oh, you know, I do. Unfortunately, the way too long for our taste. Yes, I think Terraforming Mars has a bad two-player implementation because they did no scaling at all and expect two players to do the work of four players. And I find that to be an actively bad decision, design-wise. So I couldn't give it to Terraforming Mars. Um, Dune Imperium, I only played it a bit. I haven't played it as much as the other ones. So, hmm, it's hard to say. I don't remember there being anything... I mean, putting aside my distaste for the fact that, oh, there's an area control, me killing your people, everything I just talked about I don't like from ASL, that's a not insignificant part of Dune Imperium, and I don't like it for that reason. I got rid of it for that reason. And it's a very good worker placement slash uh, deck builder. But you know what? Endless Winter is a better worker placement slash deck worker b- builder. Anyway, so it can't be that. Gaia Project. Now, this is interesting. I had practically zero issues with Gaia Project. Gaia Project might win uh, because I don't see any faults in it. Uh, and honestly, what I say here, uh, it really shines, for, but we just prefer Clans of Caledonia because of small... That is the only... I mean, I was in a case where, you know, it has a bigger box than normal, but I won't hold that against it. I'm always trying to look for ways to shrink down uh, my game collection to make it fit on these shelves. And Clans of Caledonia, I felt, did pretty much everything that I wanted out of Gaia Project, but in... A smaller box, right? And a, and a, and a quicker playtime, too. That said, honestly, I think I prefer Gaia Project to Clans of Caledonia because 
as time has gone on, I have found myself less engaged by, um, what do you call it, commodity markets in games. I mean, I, I still like them just fine, but I don't love them. And uh, Gaia Projects doesn't have those, and Caldonia does. I mean, if I could go back in time, I probably should have gotten rid of Caldonia instead of Gaia Projects. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm leaning towards Gaia Project. Twilight Struggle, it's a brilliant design. I have played it. Uh... But, you know what What I wrote here, many, many years ago, back in 2014, didn't enjoy the seesaw nature of the core game structure. The fact that it is fundamentally... It, it can feel a little just kind of rote and repetitious that, oh, well, I pulled um, you know this region over to me, now you've pulled it back to you, now I'm pulling it back to me, now I'm pulling it back to you. There's nothing bad about that, but I don't find it particularly great either, and that really is the crux of it. Uh, Twilight Struggle's true strength as a design is its multi-use cards and how they mean something radically different for me than they do for you. The command card system is brilliant. But the tug-of-war is kind of boring, so no. Seven Wonders Duel... Mm, I said one of the most heartbreaking games of 2015 uh, because of the... See, that's the other thing, too. Uh, Seven Wonders Duel, there's levels of take thatness And Seven Wonders Duel is kind of an example of the absolute worst because it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to play this card that screws you by taking your lumber and giving it to me, right? And stealing it from you. I hate doing that. But at least I appreciate it because you know what? I need that wood. I, I need that wood to build my own things, and um, you know. So, you know, at least the. I mean, but in Terra and Seven Wonders Duel, no, it literally gets destroyed. It is literally removed. You don't get it, and I don't take it from you, so I don't get it either. That is the worst. That is stealing and then burning the stuff up in front of you. There's, I mean, there's no reason for any of this take that in this anyway, because it flew in the face of the egalitarian spirit of the original Seven Wonders. But to actually go one step beyond, I would say, is example of bad design. So, no, I can't give it Seven Wonders Duel. So far, Guy Project still wins. Brass Lancashire, same issue, uh, which, again, somebody asked me about what I think about route building games. I'll talk about it next month. Although, I'll probably end up talking about when I do my run-through for uh, uh, Cargo Empire 2. Um, anyway, though, Terra Mystica... Terra Mystica had terrible two-player. It's it, it was actively bad. It should not have been marketed as a two-player game, so it can't win it. Uh, Arkham Horror, the card game. Now, that one... Gaia Project versus Arkham Horror, the card game. Root, I wouldn't give it to because as brilliant as Root is and as wonderful a gimmick it is, it is... I have seen what Root does done so much better by Free Radicals. And not because Free Radicals is another, like Root, a completely asymmetric game where each player is playing a completely different game with a central board that pulls us all together. I mean, I'm not saying Free Radicals is better than Root just because it's Care Bear friendly and players help each other rather than hurt each other. That's not what makes it better as an objective observation of design. Free Radicals does everything Root does, but to ensure that people can sit down at the table and get to playing as fast as possible, the asymmetric mini-games that everybody's playing have been simplified and streamlined down to where all I have to do is give you this piece of paper, and all you have to do is just look at the first couple of paragraphs, and you can be up and running. Root, I have to spend 15 minutes individually with each player around the table before we can start playing. And... Free Radicals demonstrates a way to achieve the same end result in a much more economically uh, viable fashion. So I couldn't give it to Root. And uh, I said I'd go for just the top 30. So it still comes down to Arkham Horror the Card Game versus Gaia Project, which is the objectively superior design. Um, 
Right. Because here's the thing. My really only problem with Arkham Horror card game was the they were the the uh, the danger cup. You know, they replaced dice rolling with a cup uh, that you have to pull out of. And um, but I appreciate that because hey, it's a modifiable die. I can put more bad stuff in or good stuff into it. More bad stuff come out. I can pay attention to what's in there, and you know, uh, probabilities change based on my input. And in, so I appreciate all that. That said. If I were to criticize Arkham Horror the card game, it would be that it still relies too much on draw from the cup, or no, make your commitments and spend your resources before you draw. And that is implicitly weaker than draw. Make your decisions, draw, and then spend your resources to mitigate the draw. You know, um, you know, play your rerolls after. I mean, you know, it, uh, you know, thinking of it in terms of a die rolling game. If a game said, "Hey, you know what? Okay, I have to roll the die, and I got to get two sixes to win." Um, and or you know, that's ridiculous. No game's going to make you do that. But I have to get two hits, and hits mean fives and sixes, right? So it's a long shot, but I have to roll two dice. I mean, the odds are against me, but it's possible. And so. A design could approach this two ways. Hey, I've got cards in my hand that I must play before I roll the die. And those cards say, add plus one to every die result you get, right? So I can play those. And those will really go a long way towards mitigating disasters. Or uh, those exact same cards can be in the game, but it could say, uh, you know, after the die roll, uh, pay the resource and play that card if you need to. I think it is... I would say an objectively superior viewed through the lens of giving players more agency and control and richer decisions to make to have those implemented such that I could play the plus one after the roll instead of before. Because if I can only play before, um, I know there's, uh, there's a decent chance it will help me and save me. But there's an almost equally good chance that I will literally be throwing away resources for no reason and I shouldn't have done it. And it's 100% down to pure luck and probabilistic outcomes that I have no control over. And I find that to be a weaker crutch that uh, developers lean on saying, hey, you know what? Sometimes that's the way the cookie crumbles rather than doing the work to balance everything so it can say, hey, after the roll, I can exert myself and push harder than I thought I ever could as opposed to I'll push harder than I ever thought I could before I roll the die. And then it turns out I didn't need to do it. Or I did it and it still failed. There's nothing brave or exciting or heroic. There's nothing out of a, um, what's it, the, the hero's journey, you know, transported into gameplay mechanisms to go that way. It's entirely wrong-headed in terms of storytelling. That's why it's weaker and that's why Gaia Project answers your question, Daniel. I hope. That was very long-winded. But it was fun. I enjoy uh, talking about design philosophy. Much more so than most of the things I talk about on this. So thank you for the question, Daniel. But anyway, you're not done. Question five, the Agricola feeding shackles. Is it the theme? All right, so this was me saying um, last time that folks like Tom Vassell get it wrong. When they are upset and frustrated by the fact that Agricola will penalize you if you do not pay your workers. You'll lose five points for every year that you do not um, feed your workers, right? You'll lose five points. And that can add up. I mean, because a good score in Agricola is like in the mid-50s. So five points for not feeding, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's debilitatingly crushing. And my answer was always, if you're frustrated by that, just don't look at it, look at it that way. Um, instead, look at it that, hey, you know what? 
Um, every time I feed, that's me scoring five points. Because mathematically, it's the exact same thing. Me not getting negative five is the exact same thing as me gaining five. So just flip the script and say, yes, I overcame. But anyway, so your counter, uh, I assume you're responding to my observation about how you can flip the script on that and not be frustrated, but instead look at it as an exciting thing that enhances your experience. But anyway, so you reply, it is it the theme that doesn't let us reverse the thought from I lost five points to I won five points. For a reverse example, in Aura Labora, uh, the settlement phase technically is exactly the same as the feeding phase in Agricola, but you get points instead of losing them. So you feel like you accomplished something and not like you're being punished. Yeah, Daniel, that's the point. And there's nothing in the theme that doesn't allow for this. Here's the deal. Imagine that in Agricola, the family of subsistence-level medieval-era German farmers that you are tasked with advising, because that's really what you're doing. You're not anybody in the game. You're, you're just a family friend helping them make decisions. Let's go under the assumption that this family, you know, long before you came along, they made it into their 20s. They must have known what they were doing, right? Because they did not die. They made it to adult status. So they know how to feed themselves. They know how not to starve. Nothing in the Agricola um, setting says anything about, oh, plague is ravaging the land and your family is going to die if you can't find food for them. It never says that. And clearly, clearly the fact that they are adult subsistence level uh, medieval era farmers means they have successfully made it this far. Maybe they're not thriving, but they were already surviving before you ever got there. That's the reality of what the situation in Agricola is. And so, um, furthermore... All you have to do is just pretend, yeah, you know what? If I never came along, they're not going to starve to death. They're somehow going to make enough food to continue to live. What I'm trying to do is ensure, through my advice and my sage counsel as their family friend, telling them you should really train in this uh, agricultural practice and you should really, um, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. You should really build this thing over here. As that's who I am in the game. I'm just, I'm just a family friend. Um, I come along and if my advice is good enough, they're doing so well. They've got so much excess food that at the end of every year, they go from surviving, which is what they did before I came along, to thriving. They actually maybe have a little abdominal fat. They actually have enough food uh, to um, you know, celebrate and take a day off. That's, and therefore, thematically, you might as well pretend that every time I give them food at the end of the year, it's like I got five points. And just, boom, make a note that I got five points. Just, you know, every time, um, uh, you know, every, every time you do that, take one of the food tokens that you um, used to feed your family member and put it in a little bonus pile. And at the end of the game, count all of the, uh, the, extra, the food tokens you put in there and multiply them by five and give yourself that many points. Yes, your, your score won't mean anything uh, compared to other people on Board Game Beat because you're, you're turning negatives into positives. But thematically, that is exactly what's going on. And as you say, that's what they do in Ori at Labor. I don't remember if that's true, but I'll, I believe you. And honestly, Tom could easily do that. And it would change nothing in terms of game balance. And then he would say, yeah, look at all these times I fed my family. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Boom, 45 points. You know, whatever. Um, it's not that many points. It's three points, is it? It's three points per, I think. Anyway, so, no, there's nothing in the theme. It is just willful disregard 
of the reality of the situation the game presents to you. It's just you know saying, oh, I know this is what the theme is, but I'm going to interpret it the way I want to interpret it because that has the added bonus of make me frustrated because it gives me something to complain about. I don't know. That's digging into human psychology on a, people are always wanting to look for a reason to complain type territory. And I think that goes beyond the purview of your question. But if not, I know you'll be back next month, Daniel. Okay, let's move on from Daniel to uh, Danilo. Or Danilo. Danilo? Danilo? Danny um, says, first of all, let me say I love the show. Even though our tastes don't always match, I find your insights fascinating. On the subject of Euro games and their complexity, my five favorite games are Indonesia, Age of Steam, Rodent Boats, Food Chain Magnate, and Spirit Island. It's a great list. I clearly tend to enjoy a game more when said game is very crunchy without the need for a lot of rules. Sure, I love Tricarian and Lisboa, but they're a bit less... Yeah, it's funny. I thought you are What are you talking about? I mean, Spirit Island has a lot of rules. Um, Age of Steam doesn't. I've never played Roads and Boats. I've read the rulebook for Roads and Boats, but I never actually played it because I realized I'd hate it just reading it. Uh, but okay, I, I will grant you, yes, compared to Trichikirian or a uh, Vita Lasarda game, the rules overhead of those games is significantly less. 100% agreed. While still being deep and rich and crunchy experiences. So that brings me to my question. I feel like few rules, very deep, let's call them streamlined, even if I don't particularly like the term, games are rare. And they have been even more rare in recent uh, years. I think it's true across all weight brackets in terms of weight. Hansa Teutonic is a 3.1. Beyond the Sun is a 3.12. Hansa Teutonic me is obviously more streamlined. I agree. Indonesia is a 3.99 and Gollum is a 3.99. The same goes here. Sure. Uh, Roden Boats is a 4.19 and Tricarian is a 4.25. Guess which one is more streamlined? Sure, sure, sure. So, do you think my feelings about the rarity of these clean designs are grounded in reality? And if so, why? It's much more difficult to design a game with depth and crunchiness, but with fewer rules. Hmm. It's interesting, Danny. First of all, in case you've never seen it, many, many, many years ago, before I even started, so this is well over a decade ago, before I started Rotto Runs Through, let me see if I can find it. I made a geek list on Board Game Geek when I was just starting out and I was trying to learn things for myself. Let's come back to it and go to. Uh, board game geek Rado depth complexity geek list. See if I can find it that way. Depth versus complexity. There it is. My Google skills are strong today. I made this back in 2012 before I started filming Rado Runs Through. Actually, it looks like maybe just about a month before I started. So maybe right around the time I started. And this was a thread where I was trying to quantify exactly what you're talking about. Uh, a spectrum of high complexity versus um, two competing XYs. There's the, the, the complexity of the game and the depth of the game and how they are not implicitly uh, linked together. Like Go, one of the deepest games humanity has ever created, and also one of the simplest rule sets. So that is like the ultimate example of an incredibly deep, rich game that you could be learning how to play for the rest of your life and studying. And yet, it has half a page worth of rules, as opposed to a Vita Lasarda game on the far opposite side. Um, you know, that... The two are not intertwined. And I just asked people to talk about it, and I gave some suggestions, and it looks like, and I believe other people did. Uh, and I talked about Reiner Knizia's and Avatar for you know high depth, low complexity, and stuff like that. And of course, this is a very old list. When was the last time anybody put anything on this list? 
I don't even remember why I made the list. Oh, it looks like they were doing more Go-ish type stuff, and not since 2016 was the last time somebody added. Thank you, Ari and Corey, for uh, revisiting. Oh, no. Oh, uh, Corey uh, popped up into it in 2021. I totally missed that. I will give them a thumb for visiting and uh, giving some ideas. That's great. So anyway, to your question, why do I believe, or do I agree, and if so, why, are there... Why is the industry skewing towards complexity rather than depth? First of all, I don't know if that's true. But if it is, I will certainly say it is because, to answer your you, you put it yourself, make no mistake, it is harder to make a truly great deep game to, inc- to enhance the depth of a simple game than it is to enhance the complexity of a simple game. Um, and I, I, here's the deal. I do not use complexity as a pejorative at all. I think uh, a game, the more complex it gets, provided it is compelling enough to not turn you away due to the complexity, I think that provides a wonderful experience because human beings enjoy nothing more in life than getting the opportunity to do things that they're good at, to to do something that they have mastered. And a game that is very complex with a lot of levers to pull and, um, uh, you know, what do you call it? Um, plates to spin and so many different things. It's so complex. There's so many interconnected things and whatnot. And it's like, you know, it's, it's like a 20-page rule book and there's so much and how am I supposed to keep track of all of it? The thing is, once you do get mastery over this complex Byzantine beast, it feels awesome to ride that beast into battle rather than a beast that you're like, oh yeah, I was able to learn how to ride this beast of, you know, you know in, a, in a half an hour. And, um, you know, I, I, there, there is... Because we like to do things we're good at. What am I looking for? I'm looking for advanced search. Because what I want to do is... I And here's the problem. Board Game Geek and the denizens of Board Game Geek, by and large, equate depth and complexity as the same thing when they're not. And it is too bad because a game will... You know, an incredibly deep game will not be listed as heavy. Uh, I mean, actually, I'm curious. What, what, what is the weight rating of Go on this side? Anyway, what I want to do is I want to just go for 2020 to 2023, just for the last three years. And I want to look at the weight range and say, okay, only tell me about fours and aboves. But, you know, uh, games that at least 20 people have even commented on. And take out the expansions, because I don't care about that right now, and I want fewer things to look at. And show me this. What I'm going to look at here, Danny, is do I think any of these games actually skew your way? Or is the overwhelming majority? Uh, And right off the bat, I'm going to say the overwhelming majority is... But see, that's the thing. I don't know if this is correct, because... I don't think the majority of... I mean, this is all just user data. People people would look at a game that's you know, um, you know, clean and simple and say, oh, well, it's not complex, so it's not heavy because there aren't as many rules. Um, yeah. And actually, the reality is most of these games are so heavy, I don't play them when it boils right down to it. So, yeah. <sighs> See, here's the thing. Depth is much harder to define than complexity, right? Complexity is just, hey, the more rules I have to remember, the more complex it is, period. The more uh, you know, rules and rules exceptions there are, the more complex it is. What does it mean to be more deep? I think that means is the level 
of thought I have to put into a decision and how it best affects my outcomes towards a win. The greater my thought pro, the, the, the more I have to think on it, the deeper the game is, right? And there's two things that can make me have to think more. Right, there's 50 billion rules I have to think about that I have to navigate to make this decision. But if you strip all that away, you can still have a great game that makes you think long and hard. I mean, I, I think it's probably going to be the case that at the end of the day, it is simply an easier design task to up complexity than it is depth. Um, because complexity will give you a faux depth that can be satisfying in its own way but requires an extra level of commitment that I totally understand why you wouldn't want to give it. But I mean, I'm just trying to think of, oh, you know, okay, let me look at a different list. Let me just look at my um, top, top, my top games from the last few years. If I see, if the games I've identified as the best games of the year, if they have the uh, level of elegance you're talking about, and right out of the bat, I would say Earth is a very elegant game. Very much so. Earth, if you haven't played it, Danny, you should try it. And it's probably going to be my number one game of the year when it boils right down to it. Evenfall is another one. Get Danny, try it. You're going to love it. Uh, let's see. Uh, are you willing to see Arnold Barcelona? Most of these are midi weight in both terms of complexity and depth, which I guess is kind of where I tend to live. Uh, Nimalia is surprisingly deep because of the way it's very simply and elegantly institutes its... Uh, Objective system, which is not a complex beast at all. It's funny. Um, Forbidden Jungle, uh, the, the latest co-op forbidden game from Matt Leacock. It was weird to see the Dice Tower the other day complaining about how, man, you could just be going along, trucking along, and just lose out of the blue, and there's no way you could predict it. Um, and I'm like... You're not paying attention to the game then, because there is a lot of depth into the thought problem. I mean, you know, and I'll take a, a Forbidden Death, the entire Forbidden series, other than the first one, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Sky, Forbidden Desert, and Forbidden Jungle. They seem incredibly simple, and they seem like they're just entirely driven by good or bad events, and you just hope for the best, and you go along for a ride, when in fact, no. They're deep games because success in those games is all about long-term planning and probabilistic judgment. Judging what is the probability that X, Y, or Z is going to happen and making plans that achieve what you want while avoiding pitfalls that you may or may not run into. And there's hidden depth there. So I think they exist. And honestly, a heavier game, I tend to... I probably tend to uh, fall on the same line as you, uh, Danny. But... I would say you're probably right. They are not as common. And were, did they used to be more common? Yes. Because prior to Vita Lasarda, and really, I mean, there were others making ridiculous... I mean, heck, the original Arkham Horror is just a ridiculously bloated, over-the-top mess of needless complexity, right? But those are the exceptions to the rules. I really do believe Vita Lasarda is one of the most influential designers of the modern age because he made it cool to throw in more depth and complexity. Uh, more, more depth or more complexity that begot more depth, um, you know, to fulfill his mandate of making sure everything is schematically accounted for. And you don't have, when you say streamlined, it's not a bad term because creating that depth in the absence of complexity means streamlining away all the complexity of life. 
stripping away all, I mean, everything we do in life has uh, triggers cause and effect chains. And a complex game effectively models more of those cause and effect chains. A simple, elegant game says, you know what? Let's just get, leave most of those out and just get things down to the center. And, I mean, you know, that's what, uh, that's what uh, Reiner Knizia does. And, uh, but Vila Sarda showed that no, you don't have to do it. There's definitely an audience for this because, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. <sighs> it's hard to say. I am not a board game designer, I'm a video game designer, but my gut feeling is you're right. At the end of the day, we see. We, we, there's two reasons we see a greater focus. Now, I mean, that's not to say there aren't wonderful deep games that come out every year. Furnace is a phenomenal one. Furnace is so freaking good. Furnace is like the epitome of incredible rich depth. Um, and so is Azul, for that matter, without complexity. But uh, those are harder to do, I think. It is harder to nail that. And it is easier to recreate all the complexity of a real simulation. And uh, you'll be rewarded for it, too. Because Tricarian has made their entire um, modus operandi based on that. And so is Vita Lasarda. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean that people really enjoy that because they enjoy mastering something and doing, then, something that they have mastered. All right. Death does not allow for mastery. Um, I'm sure all the Go masters of the world will say, yeah, I'm still learning every day. Every time I play another game of Go, I learn something new. And that's satisfying in a different way, but it's not as satisfying as, yeah, I've tamed this beast and it is mine, and now I will make it sing, you know? Alrighty. Darren says, I've argued on BGG about this, and I wonder what your thoughts are. I say... Gloomhaven should not say one to four players on the box because to play solo you have to control two. Uh, you have to play a two-player game. Using that logic, all cooperative games are solo, minus anything with hidden information. Yes, you can play it by yourself, uh, but it wasn't designed for that. Others say that if you can play it by yourself, then it's a solo game. I use Pandemic as an example of how games should be labeled. Uh, they say two to X, with the exception of the one or two that have a solo variant. Uh, you can play them all by yourself, and I do, but only uh, that one or two are designed to be played by yourself. The other argument I've heard is that Gloomhaven's a dungeon crawler, and dungeon crawlers all have two-handed solo. I don't understand why dungeon crawlers are different, and so can't explain that one properly. Thoughts? I agree with you 100%, Darren. It is ridiculous. Well, hmm. I almost agree with you, but then I'm going to stop. But in general, I agree with you. I think it is usually absurd to say that a cooperative game is a solo game because, yeah, you know what? You can just take on the role of two players. That's not a solo experience. It is technically. And, you know, so they're putting it on there as a technicality. And I'm not going to lose any sleep over it because at the end of the day, um, you know, there, there are some games that are designed from the ground up to be where, no, I am a general, and it is my job to control multiple people. And so, yeah, I, I, if every single cooperative game in the world said they, with the exception of ones with hidden uh, information, as you, as you point out, uh, say that they were one to X on the box, I personally wouldn't have a problem with it. I would disagree. But to me, it's kind of the same way I, di I disagree every time somebody says, oh, I really love that game mechanic. And I just can't stop but think it's not some person in greasy overalls who's underneath the 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 game box with a spanner tightening and loosening nuts and bolts. There's no such thing as a game mechanic. It's a mechanism. 
And yes, mechanics is a proper English plural of mechanism uh, and is synonymous. But anyway, it, I know all that's BS, and I've let it go long ago. I've stopped correcting people. Um, and I, and I kind of feel the same way about this. Yes, to be proper, Pandemic is not a solo game. But if Z-Man or Asmodee or whoever I mean, I was responsible for these decisions wanted to put one to four player on the box, maybe like, yeah, I guess. You could totally play it that way. That's fine. Now, it's interesting. You mentioned Gloomhaven specifically. Gloomhaven does get a pass because um, while it's not in the box, Isaac Childress did ultimate release. I forget. It's something like 16 different solo missions, right? I think it's one solo mission for every single character in the game. And those are designed to be played only playing as one character. And I've played a couple of them. And they're freaking awesome. And I wish he would make more. I'm sure there's plenty of uh, end users who do it all the time. Uh, and I, I think uh, they're kind of missing a trick. Of course, that is now what the uh, Gloomhaven uh, Buttons and Bugs is. It's designed to be solo from the get-go. So I agree that you're right. In the same way, I would agree that you were right if you were wanting to rail about you know, semantics. But it doesn't really matter because, strictly speaking, technically speaking, I can get out a copy of Gloomhaven and I can play it from start to finish, controlling two characters by myself, and I can win, I can lose, I can have a wonderful time, and so I'm fine with it saying one to four. And, I mean, so what if they put two to four? And it means there are players out there who would have loved it, but never picked the game up because it didn't let them know that they would love it. Because you can't assume that everybody implicitly, intuitively understands that, oh, if the game says it's cooperative, I can play it by myself. I mean, heck, I'm coming around on this as I talk. I'm talking myself into saying all co-ops should say 1 to X on the box instead of 2 to X on the box, with the exception of hidden information like, you know, uh, Hanabi or what have you. Oh. So I'm not really that bothered. Basically, I'm not bothered. You know, do what you want to do. I wouldn't say it's a lie. It's technically the truth. And you know what? Maybe it's for the best. Um, Because I I don't know that it's actively misleading because at the end of the day, you can actually do it. It's interesting. I came into this thinking I 100% agreed with you and it's kind of bugged me in the past. Because personally, I find it to be a weak sauce way to make a true solo experience. I think there is a difference between a truly solo game and what a cooperative where you're just playing multi-handed provides. And I think they should do the work. And it drives me nuts when a game wins solo of the year because they threw in an automa mode instead of designing it up from the ground up to be a solo experience. And those should be the games that win true solo of the year. But, eh. It's all semantics at the end of the day, and uh, there's no point in having... Nobody wins a semantic argument ever. So I guess that's where I come down on it. Uh, Anyway, though, Florent says, Like you, I dislike direct conflict in board games. I especially dislike the type of conflict where the optimal play is to take away lots of points from another player, either by destroying something or blocking them from a critical action. However, excuse me, I sometimes, I somehow find quite a bit of enjoyment in two-player abstract games like chess, where one is directly fighting the other player. For some reason, the thought of unleashing a brilliant tactic to remove my opponent's piece thrills me instead of saddens me. Do you feel the same way? Though abstract games are near the bottom of my preferred game genre, I do enjoy and select quite a few, and I'm even more in the process of designing one. Even more, I'm in the process of designing one. Which one's your favorite, if you have one? Um, Righty, okay. That is very interesting. I think I know why. Now, I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself, but I think this addresses some fundamental human drive. Generally speaking, 
a in-your-face abstract dueling game like chess or Go or um, oh uh, oh gosh, what's that really awesome one from Arcane Wonders? I mean, I, I tend not to. Th- I mean, I, these tend not to be my kind of things. But dueling games that are abstract. The thing is, there's two ways. There's two ways a game can um, put aggression between players in the game, Th- um, and it has to do with what else am I doing in the game besides fighting you, right? In chess, there is nothing I'm doing in the game besides fighting you. Every single aspect. Every single element of the game exists solely for one purpose, for me to fight you. As opposed to, say, Seven Wonders Duel, where every once in a while, I get the opportunity to steal money from you and then throw it in the ocean. Now, in Seven Wonders Duel, almost nothing in the game is there for me to fight you. The Seven Wonders Duel is a relatively thematic game about me trying to build and create stuff. And then every once in a while, oh, I I mean, that's what I major in. And I can minor in every once in a while stealing your stuff and then setting it on fire in front of you. Right? And I think that's terrible. Because it's unwelcome. It's contrary to the entire purpose of the game. The purpose of chess, of every single element of chess, is for me to knock your pieces off the board. The purpose of Seven Wonders Duel is for me to build something. And if I can take and knock your pieces off the board, um, I'm flying in the face of the heart of the game. I've talked about this in the past on the uh, podcast and in other places, what is, if you break the game down into one thing, I often like to think of, if I just summarize a, um, a, game, a, a board game in one word, it's going to be a verb. It's going to be the verb that describes what am I doing. And is the verb I'm doing kill? That's the verb of chess. It's kill. I have my things, kill your things. I guess there's a second one. There's trap, right? Because at the end of the day... But really, the only reason you're trying to do it is to ultimately kill the queen because she's trapped and she can't do anything. So you're trapped her, but really only in the, within the greater confines of killing. That is the verb. And there's no other verb to that game at all, really. The verb that I like most in games is create or build or um, uh, explore uh, or discover or um, those kinds of things. And if, if a game is that, to then also throw in, oh, and by the way, while you're discovering, or while you're building, or while you're creating, you know, all these positive, uplifting things, hey, let's throw in a little bit of kill, too. It's just out of place. And it's discordant with the rest of the experience. And for my tastes, it shouldn't be there. And it's why I don't like it. And I suspect it's why you don't like it either. And, um... And I, I think the reason a lot of people do like it is because, well, hey, they just grew up their whole lives thinking, well, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. I build up my, I played a lot of Warcraft, you know, the old real-time strategy computer game. I spend all my time building up my um, city. And you know, I mean, the thing is, Warcraft is an implicitly fun and satisfying real-time strategy game to just make a wonderful little enclosed community of, you know, uh, things that generate resources that help others so that we can grow and thrive and survive. And I'm sure there's probably games out there that, well, hey, yeah, that's all you do. And just have a great time. But that's what SimCity is. SimCity is superior. Because SimCity does not throw in, oh, and hey, by the way, this is really what the game is all about. But then on top of that, let's just throw in a little bit of kill, too. 
Don't get me wrong. I played, I don't know how many hours of Warcraft, but I never really enjoyed it playing it head-to-head. You know, it was, it was an early game you could play multiplayer, and it was all about, hey, I'm just trying to build up as fast and as efficiently as I can so I can send my troops over and burn your stuff to the ground. And that was like, oh, well, I guess that's what I'm here to do, but I was really having a lot more fun doing the other thing. Can we just do the other thing instead? Um, yeah, so I think that's what it is. I, I think that's why you respond this way, and you don't respond that way in an abstract game. And the reality is, you might find yourself not responding that I mean, the one I can think of, that really, to this day, surprised me. There's a couple of them. Uh, games that were very, very in-your-face and players attacking each other and destroying each other's troops and all that uh, were uh, Theseus Dark Orbit and Atlas, I want to say? Atlas was a game where I spent you spent the first half of the game designing tr- uh, troops for tactical skirmish combat on a board. And then the second half of the game is attacking other players' custom uh, stuff. And the thing is, it never really bothered me to be fighting Jen in that game because I was fulfilling the purpose of the game. If I did not create interesting units to test her units, what was the point of everything she did? Everything led, funneled towards that one verb. And that was an interesting combination of create and then kill, or create and destroy. Destroy is probably a nicer word than kill, right? Anyway... So I think it can work, and um, I think when you look at abstracts, everything just gets so pure and stripped down and taking away all the ancillary stuff and getting closer to that one verb. And when you have a game that doesn't have discordant verbs trying to occupy the same you know, simulation, it's inherently going to be better. Just like music is going to be better if all of the, uh, the uh, musicians are playing... Um, uh, sympathetically with each other instead of playing discordant notes. Bad music is when you throw in bad notes that just don't fit with everything else. And, you know, and to me, mixing verbs, I mean, it can be done well, but it's hard to do. Um, and abstract games just strip away all the extra notes, I think. Just making it up as I go along, though. Uh, anyway, though, continuing on. Number two. My genuine openness, or your genuine openness when sharing your financial details of the Rado channel is very courageous. If you're comfortable with uh, another financial question, I would like to ask whether you receive any measurable revenue from viewers with YouTube premium subscriptions. I've been a premium user for a while and have always been curious whether the premium model has been beneficial to YouTubers or not. Thank you again for all your clever insight into our hobby and also the willingness to address important topics outside board gaming. Right, cool. You know what? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, too, am a YouTube premium user. It's the best, whatever it is, 12 bucks a month. Actually, no, we have the family thing uh, because me and Jen use it. Uh, a couple of people on the Rado Runs Through Network, I think uh, Ruel uses it, and uh, my niece and nephew use it. So I think, you, you, what is it, 18 bucks a month, and you get like a family pack of six, right? So I've spread them all out. Um, and it's, it's the best 18 bucks a month I spend by far. Uh, but I, I don't really know. Uh, but let's find out. Let's find out together, shall we? Let's go back to the browser and let's pull back the curtain behind the scenes of Rotto Runs Through. All righty. Um, let's see. Actually, I need to look at uh, public videos. Show me public videos. Let's see. This is the podcast. Let's do a Q&A, right? Where's, where's my most recent Q&A? All righty. Q&A number nine, which is just an excerpt from episode 99 of the podcast. Okay, I need to look at analytics. All righty. This video has gotten 2,418 views since it was published. 
Oh, and I lost two subscribers. But I made 23 bucks. Okay. Righty. Here's what we're going to do. I am going to make notes. Uh, new tab. All righty. So 24, uh, 24.18 total. Right? And that made 23.94. 24 bucks out of 2,400 views. But now I'm going to go into advanced mode. And um, somewhere in here, gender, age, cities, geography, subscription status? What is it? Uh, it, may, it must be subscription status, right? Or is it subscription status? No, because that's whether you're subscribed or not, right? That's subscription source. Member levels? Membership type? No, that's if you're actually a member or not. Um, I don't know. Let's tell you what. Let's see. I think... Oh, I can add one, can't I? Right, there we go. So if I click here and I look at all the other things I can add, I want premium. There it is, YouTube premium. There we go, there we go. So YouTube premium um, made me $2.04. So I need to make a note of that. All righty, uh, $2.40 is how much I made. So of the 24 bucks, two and a half bucks were from premium users. But now I need to know how many premium users actually watched. Is there a way to know that? YouTube premium views right there. Boom. Okay. Uh, 511. There we go. We've got all the info we need, buddy. Now I just need to do some math. Okay. Bringing up a calculator. This is fun. Um, folks, you can do this math at home. So two, uh, 2418 minus 511 equals so really. Oh, oh okay. Right, right, right. So 19, oh, uh, 1,907 viewers got me 2,394 minus 2.40 got me 21.54. Okay, so now 21.54 divided by 1,907 users means each one of those users got me one cent, one penny. Each one of the views of this uh, for people who were watching the ads made me one penny. Okay, now let's do the same math. $2.40 I made from the premium users, of which there were 511. Whoa! Wow, each of them made me... 0.0046966. Each of them made me a half a penny. Well, there you go then. Those are the numbers. All right, I honestly... Did I do that wrong? Did I get that wrong? I don't think so. I think, yeah. Uh, I only make half as much money. I make twice as much off of somebody, a non-premium person who actually watches the ads. That is interesting. I wonder, though, there is no way that all 1,907 of those viewers who say they're watching ads, that they, they a lot of them don't have ad um, blockers turned on. But all that would mean is if I divide by an even smaller number, the number would get even better. Wow. Well, there you go. That's just one data point. Um, and I don't know, maybe my channel is weird. But yes, I make half a cent off of a premium viewer. I make a penny off of a uh, off of a viewer. It looks like off of, based on that one video. So there you go. Um, that was genuinely surprising to me. I did not expect that. Okay, um, next up. George says, Hi, Rado. 
What are your best methods for learning games? Do you usually just read through the rulebook and you can get it within one read, i.e. photographic memory? Oh no, I guarantee that's not the case. Or do you look at other videos or a little bit of everything? What type of games do you find easier to understand? Um, does quantity necessarily equal quality? I know this is different for everyone. Oh, that seems like a different question there. What? Does qu quantity equal quality? Um, I don't understand how that works. Do you mean quality of the rules? Quantity of the number of games I've played? I'm not sure. But anyway, continuing on. I know this is different for everyone, but you have so much experience with learning so many games that I'm curious what's worked best for you. Have there been games in the past where you simply refused to play because the rulebook was terrible? I personally learned by doing and mimicking first, then skim through the rulebook. Mostly Euro games just click with me. RPG games I've given up. Uh, I sometimes feel like adding in a couple more pages uh, will increase the quality of some of the games and uh, reduce the frustration having to check all of BGG all the time. Arc Nova is maybe an exception. Okay, so Klein versus Klein, you're talking about the quantity of the rules. And I see Jen staring at me from the other room. Yes, honey pie. I'm going to pause for a second because Jen needs something. Whew, that was a heavy topic that we just dealt with, um, but it's going along well. So that made me completely forget what what was going on. Um, admit, I'm still just kind of thinking about the fact that premium only gives me... I always thought it was more, but those are the numbers. Anyway, though. Right, right, right. Okay, well, okay long story short. Uh, George. It was George, right? Yes, George. Um, here's my process. It all comes... I mean, uh, first of all, get the rules. First thing, skip to whatever page I have to get to and read the bit that explains to me thematically who I am and why I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing. That is by far the most important thing. Read it off the back of the rulebook if you have to. Just try to get... Some, I mean, it doesn't matter in some games, but in most of the games that Jen and I play, it helps to understand who I am, where I am, what I'm trying to do. Because that gives me a scaffolding in my brain that I can hang everything on as I read. Oh, right! Because I'm actually trying to... Uh, stave off floodwaters, it makes sense that I'm trying to collect this particular resource. Um, and why these resources can be converted into resources, because at the end of the day, it's all about stopping flooding, or whatever. Um, so, uh, first thing I need to know is that. Second thing I need to do, and it's amazing to me, I say, skip to the part in the rule books that I have to do this all the time. I read a rule book the other day where the setup was not until page frickin' 15. 14 pages of listing what every single game mechanism is, and only halfway through the rule book did they say, right, how, how do I set up the board? What cards are there? The important thing for me is once I've got a scaffolding of who am I, what am I doing, then I start building on that scaffolding by setting the game up. Uh, tell me, you know, uh, you know, how many stack, what are the names of all these cards? Because again, I'm thinking in, I'm always, always ABT, always be, ABTT, always be thinking thematically. That's my jam. And it's how I teach games. It's how I run through games. Even when games don't have a theme, I impose a theme on them. Go back and watch my run through of Azul, where I did the work the developers should have done explaining what, what is the central thing where all the pieces that are ignored go? How is that thematically justified? And I justify all of it. Because it makes for a better game because people respond to stories. Anyway, though, so read the setup and set it up. Uh, the hardest thing in the world for me to do is sometimes I'm in a situation where I can't set up the game ahead of time, but I've still got to... It's like when I know i got to play a game with Jen when we get home and we're on a two-hour drive, and I'm just trying to read the rules on my laptop, but I can't set it up. And so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not 
I'm not populating my scaffolding in my brain correctly, and and everything's on shaky foundations, and everything's wobbly, and I mean, I, I mean, I haven't built sturdily. Know who I am, what I'm doing, why I'm there. Know what are the pieces I have with which to do that thing. Oh, these cards are flippity flops, and these resources are Scooby Doops, and whatever they, you know, whatever they are. Um, knowing where they are, put and and you know, human beings are. Um, we are tactile creatures. We connect with things by touching them, by feeling them. And it's one thing to say, oh, I'll just read a list of what all the resources in the game are. But it's another thing to punch them out, put them in a pile, put them over there, see what they look like, and make a real physical connection with them. In the absence of a physical connection with something, I can never truly use that as a strong scaffolding to build on. Right? Uh, without that real world, I mean, if, if a thing is virtual, yes, I can still do it, but it's never going to be as structurally sound. Then start reading the rules. And here's again where rule books so often just blow it because, you know, even if they put, okay, here's the, here's the order of a rule book thematic setting, setup, turn structure. That's job number three. Tell me the turn structure of this game. Don't then, as so many rules do, waste page after page after page of various and abstract, still to me, very abstract concepts of you know how things convert into other things and how events trigger based on different stimuli and what I don't care about any of that. I know who I am, I know where I am, I know what I've got to play with. Now tell me, from turn to turn, what am I gonna do? It's more important for me to know that at the beginning of my turn, I always draw three cards and keep one than it is for me to know that um, cards are multi-use and that I can discard three cards to draw one, right? I mean, that was a bad example, but you get what I mean, right? It is more concretely useful and interesting for me to build a scaffolding, a, uh, a mind path, whatever you want to call it, of this game by first knowing who I am, what I am, knowing what I have to work with, and then know- telling me, how do I do what I... I know what I want to do. I know what I have to do it. Now tell me, how do I work with these things? All right, okay, the game's going to be five rounds. Each round, I'm going to have three actions. I'm going to pick one of them. Um, those actions are blippity-bloppity-bloop. And here's an interesting thing. I don't want to know what those actions are yet. I still want to know about the structure. I will often read a rule book and it says, okay, well, here's the structure. We're playing through 15 rounds. Each round has three turns and blippity blop. And then, you know, eventually it'll say, here's the 10 actions you can choose from. And then inevitably the rule book will start telling me the actions. I don't want to know that right now. I'm still thinking about the overall structure of how this game is going to play out. So I will always skip that part and go forward four pages until I get to the section of the rules that tells me, right, what happens at the end of the round? Because I'm still thinking about turn structure. All right, okay. And so at the end of the round, every card I haven't played yet is going to be discarded. And um, at the beginning of the next round, I'm going to have to draw three more. And cards that are on the board are this, that, and the other thing. Fine. Great. Now... I understand the workings of this game, right? The same way I understand the workings of an internal combustion engine. I understand how fuel is sprayed into the chamber and um, you know the spinning of the turbines compresses it and makes it explodes and pushes it back out. I understand how the thing works. And you know what I'm ready for now? Now I'm ready to learn, right, where am I going to drive this thing to? 
And that's what the rest of the rules are. That's when I start saying, okay, now that I understand all this, you can start telling me um, that, well, yeah, here's how you harvest things. Here's how you um, convert things into other things. Here's how you uh, engage in trade with other players. Here's how you, um, you know, complete objectives. Here's how you um, jettison objectives and find new objectives. And whatever all the different core little subset actions. Because those things go to the very, very top of the pyramid that I've been building. Because I've made all these incredibly strong foundations that just layer on top of each other so that it becomes second nature. All right, of course, I understand why I do this thing because I understand where I'm going. I'm under, I know what's going to happen at the end of the round if I don't do this thing. I get why that's important. And I, after having finished, after reading the rules like I've just described it, I feel like I've already played the game. And I mean, and the thing is, I do this all the time because I probably read 10 rule books a week on average, trying to decide whether I'm going to say yes. Publisher, please send me a copy of this game and I'll play it. Nine times out of 10, I say no, I'm not going to because I understand what the game is. And I'm like, no, we're not going to like that or that's terrible or whatever. Um, anyway, that's how I learn it. And it requires, unfortunately, pretty much hot wiring, hacking the manual because. The vast majority of rulebook manuals for board games do not understand human psychology. I say all this pointing out that my major in college, when I went to the University of Washington, was scientific and technical communication. That is what I was trained to do. To take Byzantine, complex engineer speak and programmer speak, and transform it into something that regular humans can read. So I feel like I've got some skin in the game here. And I feel like that's the way a rulebook should be done, and the majority of them are not done that way. And they become a hurdle. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm describing how I learn games. I appreciate other people... The scaffolding doesn't hold up, and they need to know what's at the top. I mean, I, I, that's such a foreign, alien concept to me that that would be a better way for them to learn. But uh, it's, it's true. Uh, it's definitely there, and I think, unfortunately, that is fast becoming the standard. That, oh, yeah, you're supposed to... Uh, uh, there's nothing I hate more in a rule book than starting out with, here's a few key concepts you need to understand about the game. No, they are not. None of them are as key to me understanding the game as I'm going to play over 10 rounds. Each round, I get to do three actions. That's more key and crucial to understanding the game than knowing that um, you know every flip blorp can be converted into 15 dib dops. You know, that's immaterial. That's trivia that you can tell me about after I know how many turns I'm going to take in the game. Rulebook manual writers out there. Anyway, so that's how I learned... And that you know that that's that's my that's how I do it. I basically have to hack rule books because they're usually not done right. Okie doke. Uh, Helmet says just hearing uh, the episode ninety eight with a question about the new setting for Pandemic Legacy. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, hypothetical. What would be great new settings to use the Legacy system in? What do you think about a city simulation where the cubes represent fire, crime, uh, school needs, garbage, etc.? In order to win, you have to take care of the of results, the cubes, and also perform tasks to clear the card, which result in being out of the game. You win if you clear a certain amount of tasks. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a great idea, Helmet. I love that. I can think of one game that kind of abstracted that way. I can't remember the name of it now. It was basically a pandemic. It was the first pandemic clones, and it was basically said in ancient Israel. And the uh, 
the cubes represented the spread of corruption and we were prophets trying to travel around and stopping the spread of corruption. So it was very abstracted. And while, you know, the subject matter didn't really resonate with me, I thought, oh, well, that's really cool. Um, and, you know, that you, you could represent something much more abstract, like, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, moral failings in people uh, by the spread of cubes and treating it like that. I thought that was actually really neat. So I think it's a great idea, Helmet. Joseph says, Many deck builders, most recently Four Horsemen, include trashing as a means to remove weaker cards from the player's deck. Uh, while used cards go neatly into a discard pile, few, maybe no games, have a discrete trash pile for cards removed that way. Actually, that's not true. If I recall correctly, at least in the original first printing of Dominion, there was literally a card that said trash on it. And you were supposed to take trash cards and put them on that card that said the word trash. Maybe they don't do that anymore. And maybe I'm remembering wrong. But anyway, I personally love it when games have this mechanism. Can't help myself. I just corrected Joseph because he said mechanic. But ah, anyway, I also wish that there was a clear space to put these cards rather than aside or back in the box. What are your thoughts on this? Also, can you think of any game that's done something interesting with their trashed cards? Um, yeah, oh, there's definitely uh, a Sonia. I think is a very good deck builder. Where you know, I mean, it's got. I mean, hey, I've got my deck of things that generate resources, and I got to get the right resources in hand to buy other cards, and you know, and I got to worry about bad cards in my deck and all that. But one of the things you can do is, if you collect a certain number of cards, you can trash a collection of them to make one of the ones that you're trashing a permanent stays on the board forever. It's a simple thing, but it's revolutionary in terms of... Uh, because it's curving so many things. You know, it's giving you a permanent, always hands-on resource, you know, thinning out your deck at the same time, trying to, you know, make set collection a, a more tangible and meaningful. It's brilliant. It's a simple little thing. And I'm sure there's other games. I mean, surely the easiest thing you can do with a, with a trash pile is say, oh, it's still a resource in the game. And you can still... And I know, I, I can't think of any, but I know I've played games where there are cards that let you go back into the trash pile and take cards out of it. I mean, gosh, I feel, I feel like we just played one just the other day that did this. Oh, gosh, what was it? So I know I've seen that in games, too. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I have to admit, I never put them back in the box anyway. <laughs> Whenever Jen and I play any one of these games, there's just a big, sloppy, messy pile of cards up at the top of the board where we just keep throwing them. And every once in a while, um, you know, if we, if we have to go look through, we have to sort stuff out and whatnot, but... No, I, I think it's great. I, I think the idea... I mean, I think that's the true secret sauce of why Dominion revolutionized an industry. Because it put, so smartly, a, a, a at the time, completely um, counterintuitive notion of, hey, after I get things, I want to hold on to things. I want to hoard things. This is something that people have to unlearn when they first start playing Dominion or some Dominion-derived game, that no, it's a bad thing to have too much stuff because it clogs you up. And the crap stuff keeps you from getting to the good stuff you want. And, you know, hey, it's a lesson for life. that Don't, uh, don't hoard things. You know, uh, you know, only keep that which sparks joy. Or in the case of board games, that which sparks victory points. And get rid of the other stuff. I mean, I, I, it's such an important, valuable life lesson. And it's contrary to games in general, which have traditionally been all about satisfying and rewarding avarice. Gotta get them all, Pokemon style. Because in most games, you have infinite storage, right? Uh, and there's never any complexity in the logistics of maintaining an infinite amount of stuff because the game takes care of all that for you because it abstracts the real world away. 
So no, I, I agree. Um, you know, it's it is brilliant of Donald X. Vaccarino to put that front and center. That success of this game is as much about getting rid of stuff as acquiring new things, and I love it. And yeah, anytime a game comes up with something uh, smart to do with it, that's great. That said, I don't personally feel the need to have a section of the board devote that literally has the word trash or a picture or an icon of a trash can on it. I'm fine throwing them back in the box. Or, as Jen and I do, into the big, sloppy, ugly pile of cards that's at the end of the table that we don't look at until we're putting the game away. Uh, next up, which of my top X, X equal as many as I like games, would I like to see made into a roll and write, flip and write? And how do you imagine that game working in its new form? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Let's go to ranked.rado.com. Boop. And... Uh, it's going to come up here any second. I think. There we go. So, what would I like to see? Would I like to see a roll and write? I, I'm just, I understand flip and fill and roll and write. I mean, to me, there, to me, there's functionally not enough of a difference to make the distinction between a roll and write and a flip and write. They're both random in writes. Some random seed, whether it's a die, whether it's a deck of cards, whether it's a bag I draw stuff out of, whether it's a tower that things fall through, doesn't matter. Some random seed generator that then prompts me to write things on a piece of paper. Random and write. Random and write. Uh, so, would I like to see a random and write of Pandemic, my number one game of all time? That is a really interesting idea. Huh. Because, okay, it's supposed to in- invoke Pandemic. And it could certainly be done. But I don't think it would be anywhere near as elegant as Pandemic, which is, I mean, because the, pro- the, the thing about Roland Rights that I think makes them really special is the concept of permanence. That, well, I'm, I'm going to put aside the ones that, you know, come with a. Uh, dry erase markers and wipe off boards that you can... Oh, I can write things down and then I can erase them. I mean, that's fine if a game does that, but I think that's kind of eliminating one of the things that truly makes a roll and write special. The fact that, hey, once I write a thing down, that's it. I can't undo it. Uh, There's no undos, right? And of course, Pandemic is all about undoing things and then redoing things. Oh, I got rid of those cubes and now they're back. And now I got rid of those cubes and now they're back. So what would it mean to have a roll and write it would have to be a simpler map where where you can't stop the spread. It, no, it would change the game so much as to be meaningless. So I don't see... I mean, and it could be a limit of my imagination, quite frankly. But again, the things... It has to be a game that responds well to the fact that once something has happened, it can't be undone. And a lot of games aren't about that. And that's what makes Roll and Rights different. That's what makes it an interesting genre, especially when developers do something with that in mind and leverage that. And I, off the top of my head, I'm, maybe I'm just too dense, but I can't think of that for Pandemic. Um, Castles of Burgundy. Well, there, yeah, there is a perfectly fine Castles of Burgundy rolling right. Uh, it, was, it was quite nice. Uh, because, yeah, Castles of Burgundy, once you put the tiles down, you tend not to get rid of them. So Castles of Burgundy is perfectly well suited for a rolling right. And it turns out the uh, Dice of Burgundy is excellent. Uh... Gloomhaven. I have halfway done a Gloomhaven roll and write in my head. Probably never uh, come out, but I've, I've got thoughts. Uh, Agricola. Ooh. Yeah, I think Agricola would really lend itself to the roll and write thing because, you know, yeah, I, yeah, I totally would. In fact, 
Why hasn't it happened? It, surely it must have happened by now, right? No, it hasn't. That's ridiculous to me now that I think of it. There is no roll and write version of Agricola. There was the streamline stripped down, you know, all creatures great and small or big and small. But uh, yeah, a, a roll and a, you know, a, a uh, roll and write of Agricola would be amaze balls. So so far I've got one. Let's see, Twa we have one, kind of, sort of. Nations, nations would definitely work too. I would love to see a roll and write of nations. Again, we have Nations the dice game, but not the roll and write. I think that could be really cool. Mmm, Polyphonies. Yes, Polyphonies. You know what? The longer I go, the more I think most of my games, I would love to see it. Because I would love to see all of my favorites with the added twist of saying, hey, once you've done something, you have to live with it for the rest of the game. You can't undo it. You can't rebuild the thing you tore down. You can't recover the thing you sold. You know, there's only so many times you can do a thing, and then it's done. So that's the thing. A lot of times, roll and rights have their cake and eat it too. They say, oh yeah, look, here's 36 coins. Every time you get a coin, circle it. When you spend it, cross it out. That's fine. There's a nice, clean elegance to it. But they do that knowing that it is very unlikely that anybody will ever, have, will ever earn more than 20 coins in the game, right? It's just a really weird situation where they would ever get close to the maximum number of coins. And see, to me, that's missing a trick. That's the designers not looking at that as an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? In this game, you can never have more than 12 coins. And you can never spend more than 12 coins. So every coin you collect and every coin you spend is terrifying, is so laden with gravitas and purpose. But they don't do that. They just say, oh, look, we effectively have infinite coins because you'll never fill up this many holes. And that's fine, but then that all that's doing is the roll and ride is just recreating what the original game did as opposed to leveraging the strength of a roll and ride. When there are only 12 circles I can circle and then cross out, it, me it very quickly turns in, wow, money is more important in this game than any game I've ever played before. Because there's this hard limit, and the limit is reinforced not necessarily by the theme, but just by the fact that there are only 12 circles I can fill in on the board. And that's an example of somebody using roll and rights to really great effect to do something new and different. And very few people do it. But I, you know, so with that in mind, I mean, I would probably, I would wager probably two thirds of my favorite games would make great roll and rights, especially if people wanted to really leverage the art form. So I'll stop right there. Okay. Um, Mike says, we're seeing quite a few video games made into board games. Which board game, based on a video game, is the best one currently? Which purely video game IP that is not already made into a board game do you think would make the best board game? I know the answer to that one off the top of my head. It is mind-boggling to me that nobody has um, worked with Electronic Arts, I assume, maybe Maxis, I don't know who, to uh, make Sims the board game. The, you know, one of the most successful video games in human history. I mean, we've got a Minecraft game. We've got, we've got a Call of Duty game now. Why do we not have a Sims board game? We have life simulators. But, um, and here's the deal. We do have a Sims, uh, the Sims, the board game, except it's completely hidden um, in plain sight. It's Dungeon Pets. Ever since I played Dungeon Pets for the first time and was so struck by the brilliance of Vlada Shavadl's design that gives you these creatures, the, the pets, you know, these uh, 
cute, adorable, um, you know, fantasy monster babies that you have to grow up so they can become strong, powerful monsters. And every round, there's just this brilliant system that they have needs that have to be met. And everything I'm doing is about trying to meet the needs of these things so they can grow big and strong. And I can predict some of what they can do. I can even influence some of what they do, but they'll always surprise me. And I have to be prepared for those surprises. That's the freaking Sims right there. And just taking that idea and turning it into the Sims, how has that never happened before? It's amazing to me. All right. So, but anyway, that would be my answer to the second question. The first question, um, what is a game? Dark Souls, right? That, uh, that's the first thing that pops into my head. Yeah, there's a bunch of Dark Souls games. I'm only doing that so that, because I'm betting there's a family. All right, there you go. Video game, theme, not, all right, theme, boss battle. All right. I'm just saying, integrates with... Come on, classification, sex, I don't want video game themed Dark Souls. I'm pretty sure there must be a family that's just video games, right? Video game adaptation. All right, Call of Duty. Uh, it's the second one I can think of because it's the most recent one I played. Call of Duty, the board game. Please, come on. Publishers, make our life easier. They have no interest in making my life easier. All right, is there a geek list then? All right, let's just do advanced search. Search. Advanced search for geek list that has the word video game in the title. Uh, no, 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 not advanced search, that search. Board games. Uh, geek list. There we go. And now video game. All righty. And then I have to say, no, the title. Just the title. I don't care if it's in there. All righty. So that will get thing right. New board game choices from hardcore video game player. Uh, best video game adaptation in your collection. That one has seven. That might be a good one. Video games, all right. Uh, video game theft star. Female video game list. Because top ten video game board games. Uh, is there a way I can sort this by the most successful or the most entries? Nope. Ten board game. Uh, I would have sworn there somebody would have made uh, a. Uh, a, a uh, you know the the definitive list of every single video game themed board game, and I'm really surprised to see that I'm I'm not seeing one here. Uh, and then video reviews that's not even board game limitation professional video games. All right, you know what I need to do? I need to search for the word item and whatever has the most item. All righty, so seven twelve seven forty seven thrift store bargain finds. Ugh. Video game thrifts. What? That, that is wrong. How is this so hard to find? The three minute. All right, that's just their video list. All right, okay, I need to change this to say just video game in that order. Stop talking about this other stuff. All righty. So now, give me an entry, a, a geek list. First annual video game draft. Is that one? How can this not exist? Video game quotes. Why is that on Board Game Geek? 10 items because somebody made a top 10 list. I am really disappointed that um, this is so hard to find. And now we're just getting into old, old lists. Oh, they are sorted by date. All right, well, let's just take a look at a few of them. All right, Bloodborne, Fallout, Shelter, Doom. Yeah, these are old lists. I can't believe this. Why is this so hard to do? Civilization, Hawken, Devil May Cry. That was a pretty good game, except it was too long. Jeepers. Well, folks, if you want to have a super hyper popular um, geek list that everybody will flock to and will you know get so many thumbs, it'll have one of the uh, longest, uh, uh, you know, one, one of the most used ones on Board Game Geek. 
start making this list because it seems like nobody has done it. But you know what? Just zipping through these things, I did see one. I did see this, Anno 1500, that makes me know the answer. Okay, I don't have to find the list after all. But, uh, plus, it seems like most of these are just things that are kind of board game-like as opposed to actual translations. It doesn't matter, though. By far, hands down, the best board game that is uh, an implementation, a translation of, a, of an original video game franchise is Anno 1800 by Martin Wallace. Right? Where is that in my rankings? If I go to games.rado.com and I wait for that to open up while I get a drink of water. Whee! Right, Anno 1800. A-N-N-O. I should have just done this from the get-go. Uh, that is my 58th highest ranked game. It's my 58 out of my top 100. And I am sure there's not going to be another video game that is higher. You know, maybe video game inspired, maybe video game like, but not a freight video game. Yes, Anno 1800 is the best. And it's interesting because it demonstrates what is absolutely important to be successful at translating a property, an intellectual property, from one genre or one format to another. And it's something that so many creative people mess up because they think, oh, I just have to slavishly adhere to what was originally there and just try to recreate that in a new form. And you do that and you create something soulless. Uh, and something that doesn't take advantage of the new format. Surely, one of the greatest examples of our lifetime of a property being transformed from one to another is the original Fellowship of the Ring. You know, and the Rings trilogy, really, as a whole. But Fellowship, mostly. Um, because... They were, uh, they were not, I mean, they were beholden to the spirit of Tolkien, but not a literal beat-by-beat -beat interpretation. And I remember when the movie first came out, there were so many people that were so angry that Eowyn was at the forward of whatever, whatever, with the, with the horse water and stuff like that. Because that's supposed to be somebody else. And like, yeah, but they improved on the storytelling. They made this a better two-and-a-half-hour-long movie than whatever, 800-page book. Because they realized this storytelling in a different medium benefits from a different combination of the playing pieces. And the same thing is true for Anno 1800. Anno 1800 all but destroys... I mean, I can imagine somebody else trying to translate Anno 1800, which is basically a, you know, something that's inspired by the original SimCity. Um, but you know, just trying to recreate that in board game form. I've played games like that. That's not what Martin Wallace did. What Martin Wallace did is took the heart and soul of Anno 1800 and translated it into a board game that kept that feel, but did new and interesting things that leveraged the the you know the platform he was on, and it's all the better for it. So I'm going to go with Anno 1800, and why don't we have The Sims yet? Okay, another Mike says. Want to get your thoughts on the increased use of AI technology in board games? The most recent example is Terraforming Mars Prelude 2. The company's been very forthcoming about using um, using AI-generated art as a starting point for all assets and then having artists clean them up, so to speak. Many are vocally against this practice, calling it blatant stealing from the original source material while the AI is using... Uh, source of the AI is using for its reference. Do you agree? What are the implications of AI use for other aspects in the future? Writing, rules, game design, etc. Well, first of all, the implications for AI across the board for all of humanity, doesn't matter what you do is, in 100 years, we're all going to be out of a job. That's the implications. AI, it, it, 
in 20 years from now, you're going to be able to go onto whatever the equivalent of a browser is at that point, probably something maybe um, on your face in a pair of glasses or whatever it is, and say, I would like to see a run-through of Anno 1800, a demonstration of Anno 1800 done in the style of a Rotto runs-through, but done by Judy Dench. And they'll wait 30 seconds, and boom, they'll have it, and they'll be able to watch that. Because, I know, if all my videos haven't disappeared from the internet, they will understand exactly how I did run-throughs, exactly what my cadence were, exactly what I focused on. They'll be able to make a uh, pixel-perfect recreation of Dame Judy Dench. And uh, they'll be able to uh, understand and uh, grok the rules. And, I mean, and heck, if they want to, they maybe even be smart enough to put in a virtual Apollo to correct some virtual mistakes that they put in. Because if it's a Rotto runs-through, there's going to be some goofs. That's coming. That's the reality. There's no getting around that. And so what that requires, and this is normally something I talk about in the other half of the podcast, about, you know, the future of humanity and what, uh, why universal basic income is absolutely essential. And the sooner we work towards that, the better. But, you know, it's, it's coming for board game artists. It's coming for board game designers. Here's the deal. Star Trek models what this future is. As I remember, I remember thinking, oh, wow, what an interesting idea. The holodeck in next gen, um, nobody blinks twice. You can just walk into the holodeck and say, uh, computer, create a Sherlock Holmes mystery for us to solve in a half an hour. And it just does. And it just creates Moriarty. And then, well, you know, Moriarty becomes sentient and all that. But regardless, it just does it. And nobody thinks twice about it. And then you think, oh, no, in the future. All the writers and artists, they, 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 they've, they've, they've disappeared. The, the human creative spark is gone. But no, because it was so brilliant that I wasn't until Star Trek Voyager that they started mentioning how Tom Paris loved to dabble in hollow novels, I think is what they called it or something like that. Because even though the computer could make something that would be instantly satisfying and just as good as something created by a human, um, you know, with with proper characters and motivations and plot beats and character growth and triac structures, and it'll be able to recollect all of that. It doesn't change the fact that people still want to tell stories, and that other people will gravitate towards. Oh, Tom did that one. Hey, let's f- let's fire up that hollow novel he made, or whatever they called them on Voyager. That's the future. Uh, when we're talking about AI art, yes, right now, as of today, um, you know, board game artists could get replaced in mass. Does that mean people who have devoted their life to making art will suddenly say, well, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm going to stop making art. No, it doesn't. They will still have that urge, that itch to create. The problem is they are going to be muscled out of the economy or they are going to be too expensive, um, which is why. And that's not going to happen just to artists and just to lawyers and just to radiologists and just to construction workers and just to garbage truck drivers, and to literally every single, almost without exception, very few exceptions, almost every single job that exists. Within 100 years, computers will be able to do it better, more efficiently, and cheaper than us. That's the reality. It's coming. And nothing will stop it other than nuclear apocalypse. Um, So, we're just in the baby steps of it. And uh, yeah, it's you know, and just like every technological advance, it's going to hurt some people sooner than others, and we are going to have to adjust. It's just this time we're going to have to adjust on a species level, 
rather than what we've done in the past, which was just on a socio-economic level. Oh, um, you know, eventually when driverless cars come, all the drivers are going to have to find a new thing. And that just affects one facet of humanity. It's going to affect everybody eventually. It's just, um, you know, know, one of the first people it's going to affect is artists and writers and stuff like that. Um, So, but that's all hand-wavy talking about the future. Talking about the here and now, let me tell you where I come down. We actually did a run-through for um, the Prelude 2 thing. And, uh, you know, we were paid to do it. And when we accepted the job, we didn't know they were doing AI art. And um, when we found out after we posted the video, I think the day after we posted the video, that, oh, there's AI art in the game, I contacted um, uh, Indie Boards and Cards and said, hi, tell you what, um, I'd like to take the video down, and you just don't have to pay us. And, uh, you know... Uh, you know, good luck with the project. We're just going to take it down. And um, because we're, at this point, I'm not comfortable with contributing to having artists go hungry. It's unavoidable. It's going to happen. But I do not want to be a cog in that machine that makes it happen. Not until we get to a truly equitable society where the benefits of AI spread to our, you know, um, benefit everyone and not just the super hyper rich that are trying to create AI right now so they can become more super hyper rich. And that's not fair. A lot of people are pursuing AI for the betterment of humanity. I know that. I'm over-exaggerating for effect. Um, But me putting up a video that um, legitimizes... Uh, artists not being hired to do work, or fewer artists not being hired to do work, I don't, I don't necessarily need to be a part of that. So I took a bath on that because I still Ruel did the video and I still paid Ruel his full price and it came out of my pocket instead of the publisher's pocket. So that tells you, I think I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I lost a lot of money on that. Uh, Ruel actually had to film the video twice, and um, that meant Paulo had to goof check it twice. So I had to pay Paulo double. And I still paid him. And I paid Ruel, even though I'm not getting paid because we took the video down, because I do not want to contribute to that, even though I know it's going to happen. So that's kind of where I am. We have said no to other games where the developers were forthright. Now, I do not deny them their right to do it. Um, I'm not even sure about the claim that it's ethically dubious to do it, because I don't know that I agree that it's theft. Because my understanding of how AI scraping works is... Uh, that, you know, it's not like Midjourney has a quadrillion, um, gigagabillion bytes worth of art just sitting around and it just grabs the art and smushes it together. All that Midjourney and other systems like it have done is replicated the, the same thing that every single human on this planet has ever done. By the time I'm five years old, I have been exposed to millions of images Things I see in the real world, things I see on TV, things I see in books, things I see everywhere. Millions of images. And what I've taken away from all of that is a general understanding of what an apple is. An apple is red. An apple is round. Often they have stems. Sometimes if it's a cartoon, it'll have a little leaf on it. If Picasso did it, it is weird kind of uh, trapezoidal features. If it's um, a Monet, it's probably going to have more of a desaturated look to it. There's a lot of different ways an apple could be. And I've been exposed to millions of them. And that has formed my idea of what an apple is and all the different ways I could express an apple if I had the... the uh, 
the manual dexterity and the brain chemistry to you know put it down on a piece of paper and pencil or really if i if i had the skill that came through practice and i had the discipline and all that but i have all that raw stuff that's what midjourney did midjourney being trained all it did is it looked at billions of pictures and said oh all these pictures were labeled with apples you know what i noticed they're all red or green and they all have this basic shape. And over time, what Midjourney did is it made note that apples are round and they're red and they have stems. And when they're done as a cartoon, they always put one leaf on them. And sometimes they have a worm coming out of them. You'll see that more often in cartoons. You won't see it as often if it's photoreal. You'll never see it if it's done, uh, it was never done by Picasso. So Midjourney has just literally, in the same way that an infant to a 12-year, to a tween, looks at billions of images, and that lets them form an understanding of what the world looks like. That's what Midjourney has done. So it understands what an apple looks like and can recreate an apple a million different ways, depending on how you want that apple to look. And I have a hard time thinking that's theft. The, the act of looking at something and noting, oh, you show you made an apple look red, is me literally stealing from you if you drew a picture of a red apple. And to me, whether I looked at it and noted that you made a red apple or a computer looked at it and noted you made a red apple, to me, it's 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 splitting hairs. So I don't know about the unethicalness of it, but I do know that I do not want to, because we do not live in that perfect Star Trek utopia I'm talking about. If we did, I'd be all for it. Because um, people would make art because it um, inspires them, because they want to express themselves, and people will find that art, and it will be a more pure form of art that's not driven by commerce. But the reality is, everything in our lives is driven by commerce right now. 200 years from now, provided we make it as a species, um, capitalism will be viewed as one of the greatest necessary evils of human history and we'll be well well past it because everybody's needs will be met and people will do things because it inspires them not because they need to do it to pay their bills but we're a few hundred while uh, we're a few hundred years away from that and in the meantime i do not want to contribute to somebody not being able to pay their bills and it's interesting too i'm still trying to find my way around this it's funny i've seen a lot of people say well you know what it's okay to use ai for concept art just not for the final art and to me, that's kind of crap. That's kind of a garbage argument because as somebody who worked in the video game industry for 20 years, I worked with a lot. Some of the most talented artists I ever worked with were concept artists and none of their art ever made it into the game. Ever. Mike McCarthy, maybe the greatest artist I ever worked with. A couple of his art pieces were so good we put them on posters in Fable. But for the most part, he just inspired the rest of the team to make stuff. And every time somebody says, well, you know what, it's probably okay to use it as just for concept art to inspire everybody else. Well, that's just taking work away from concept artists. And to me, that's just as problematic as saying, well, yeah, do it for the uh, final shipping game too. So it's, it's, it's coming. There's no avoiding it. But we don't have to rush headlong into it, right? We can try to embrace our future in a way that doesn't destroy people along the way. And that's kind of how I look at it. And that's why I lost hundreds of dollars on Terraforming Mars Prelude 2 because I had to pay Apollo and, uh, well, out of my own pocket to bury a video. So that's kind of where I come on. I don't know if that makes any sense, but... uh. There you go. Okay, where are you next? Um, Nigel says, 
during the recent Kickstarter campaign for new Terraforming Mars content, Stronghold Games revealed they have and will continue to leverage AI-generated content. Uh, in the development of the project, Travis Worthington of Stronghold later interviewed by Polygon defended this decision, saying, quite honestly, the use of AI can be a cost saver. But I think the biggest reason why Frixis, why Frix Games, uh, and quite honestly ourselves, are using this is not the cost savings, but the development time. You can always equate time with cost, but the time to go through and bring a product to market can be decreased dramatically by using generative AI. And, you know, and that's an interesting point. Everything I just said in the last comment, I mean, we're all trying to figure this out. This is literally a man-made extinction-level event for all intents and purposes. We have created the tools for the demise of our own creative outlet. Not ourselves as a species, but our creative outlet because we put too much... We work commerce and capitalism into everything like it's a panacea that will solve everything. When in fact, no. Capitalism... And I'm sorry, this is really kind of getting more into the personal Q&A portion, but it's kind of bleeding into uh, gaming, which is, we're in the gaming half of the podcast. Capitalism has always been, at best, a necessary evil. And AI is going to lead us to a future where it's not necessary anymore. And it's going to be great, but it's going to be ugly getting there. And so when I say, I personally do not want to contribute by normalizing an artist being put out of work or where it used to be three artists to do the work, now one artist can do it. Same thing was true in the agricultural industry. My family comes from agricultural um, union raising. That's my family background. I'm you know, trying to organize and stop the exploitation of uh, seasonal migrant workers. That's what my grandfather was famous for. And my mother traveled her whole childhood up and down California and through Mexico, just helping migrant workers. And I'm sorry, that's not here. Just giving you some context for where I come from. And it's telling how, with every new technological advance, more food can be produced with the labor of fewer people. And that's a net positive for society. But it's a net negative for the people who made their livelihoods picking fruit or whatever it might be. And the same thing is now happening. It used to be. Um, to make a terraforming Mars Prelude 1, they needed three artists to get X amount of work done. Now, they need one artist doing paintovers of what Midjourney gives them. And that is, it is, as they say, uh, a time is money consideration to make. And why, one might argue, and it's a fair argument, am I favoring the artist and trying to ensure that I don't contribute to their suffering, but I'm not favoring the game producer. Because surely, if a game producer can produce a game faster and cheaper, that helps them and their family and their livelihood, right? So shouldn't I take them into account too? I think that's a fair point. Until you notice the fact that Terraforming Mars has raised over $1.5 million. And now I know... It's not like they've made $1.5 million in profit. I realize that. But at the end of the day, if I have to make a choice, I am going to favor the little guy over... Let's not call it the big guy. Let's call him the slightly less little guy. Because it's not like Stronghold is some titan of industry. It's not like they're Exxon or you know uh, Monsanto or something like that. They're still just a small little group of people trying to make sure they can pay everybody. It's There's no money in board games. Nobody, or almost, almost nobody's getting rich off of board games. Very, very few people are. Um, and so I'm aware of that. But at the end of the day, if I have to choose one or the other, I will always choose 
the smaller fish rather than the medium fish or certainly not the big fish. And so uh, this is a fundamental dichotomy. It helps stronghold to be able to make things faster, higher quality, cheaper. It breaks the traditional paradigm. Okay, do you want it faster, cheaper, or better? Pick two right? I remember Mike Byspeck, uh, a producer on one of my early games, teaching me that core concept of production. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's so perfect. And it informs everything. AI flips that all on its head. Maybe not yet, but it will get to the point where it completely destroys that. Hey, you know what? It will be cheaper. It will be faster and it will be better. It will be all three things or at the very least as good as, as good as, if not better. So of course, it, it's in it's in a publisher's best interest to ensure their ability to continue to make more games, but it's also in an artist's best interest to ensure that um, their art can go. And I guess um, it's a, I mean, gosh, I mean, coming back to Star Trek, is it a needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? Yes, th- and that is why AI is going to continue to propagate and insinuate itself into every facet of humanity because it is in the interest of the many to be able to produce more for less because there's more of us every day. But that doesn't change the fact that, um, you know, the whole point of Star Trek three is, you know what? No, sometimes you pick the few over the many. Sometimes you go and save Spock and to heck with the consequences. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. But it is a complicated question. Anyway, though, continuing. Quite honestly, the use of AI can be a cost saver, but I think the biggest reason... Uh, right, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm repeating that. The ethical and perhaps legal implications... All right, so this is out of quotes. This is back to Nigel. Continues. The ethical and perhaps legal implications of using AI-generated art has caused some gamers to question their support of such practices. I appreciate you probably don't want to get bogged down into a discussion about the pros and cons of AI. Too late! But I was uh, struck by one of the Board Game Geek users' comments, which said, This hobby has become an industry which has gone from warm, fuzzy house you visit to feel good, to a cold and different factory that only exists to make money. And so, Nigel's question is, do you feel this hobby has become too big and too impersonal, or are we in danger of losing the human touch? No, 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 no. Whoever said that, they are wrong. That is not true. Because at the end of the day, what AI is doing in this case is facilitating um, more work to be done by fewer people. But at the end of the day, the artists working on Prelude 2 have posted on Board Game Geek, and most people are ignoring that post, where he's saying, no, 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 I'm still, I mean, this is still human art. This is still art that has a soul. This is still heart, the art that has intention. This is just better art than we would have been able to compromise our own, but we are still human beings driving the creation of this art. I mean, not for nothing, it's an art form in and of itself to actually get anything good out of mid-journey, anything useful. And all it's doing is, I mean, they've said, look, we're using this as a, we're using this, we are basically replacing concept artists, which is a concept that, again, I know from the video game industry, but the board game industry, there there are no margins for, uh, literally, somebody whose full-time job is to do concept art and nothing else doesn't exist. There's not enough money in the board game industry to do that, even though it's an incredibly common thing in the video game industry. Um, So, artists have to do double duty. Your concept art is your real art, 
right? With just more iterations. And now, no, 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 no. We can get the concept up and running that much faster, which means we can produce more with fewer people. But it's still people driving it. There are still human beings doing their best with Terraforming Mars Prelude 2 to make it special and meaningful and um, an expression of their own creative energies. That hasn't changed at all. It's only that there are now fewer human beings involved in the process because some of the process steps have been automated. And that has happened for manufacturing cars and harvesting crops and reviewing legal briefs and writing sports copy and, again, pretty much every other facet of human endeavor that we know of. We're all going to go through it, which means we need a species-wide reboot. And that's what's going to happen. But it doesn't mean that humanity has been taken out of the process at all. And I do not believe humanity will ever be taken out of the process. It doesn't matter that, again, in the future, in the perfect Star Trek future, where you can just walk onto the holodeck and say, hey, make me an awesome um, Sherlock Holmes mystery, and the computer will do that, and everybody will love it, and they'll have a great time until it gains sentience and tries to take over the Enterprise. It doesn't change the fact that people still want to tell their own stories using the tool of computer AI um, in that future. Nobody ever watched, um, you know, scenes of in Deep Space Nine and whatnot, or, or you know, Data. Data was an artificial intelligence painting paintings. And what does that mean? He was struck by the creative urge. That's never going to go away. It's, I mean, we are not going to lose what makes us human. What's going to happen is we're going to go through a transition process where we can't get paid to do the things that make us human anymore. And so we will have to rearrange all of our fundamental concept of supply and demand to ensure that everybody's needs are met from the moment they're born to the day they die with total equality. Um, And then people do things because they love it. Not because, well, I need to feed my family, and if I get lucky enough to do something I love, I got the lottery. It's a better future, but it's going to be a rocky road to get there. And that's the reality of it. And we are on to gaming questions with Jen. So hang on, everybody. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody, we are back. Jen is here. Hi, honey pie. Jen, Darren asks... All games are different, of course, but assuming the mechanisms match the history, do you have a favorite nation you would want to play in a civilization game? Ooh. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, I'm not sure. Now, there's a few ways to look at it. You can kind of think it through a modern lens, but really, for the most part, when you play civilization, it's always like, you're going to be ancient Mesopotamia, you're going to be ancient Egypt, you're going to be ancient Greece. You know, it's more about those. But I would think you could probably say, well, would you rather be Europe or would you rather be South America or Mesoamerica? I'm not sure. Hmm. I think I would rather be a small society finding their way and learning about art. Okay. Yeah. So whatever true historical societies were driven by the pursuit of art and beauty above all else is the one you want. It's just whichever one that is. Became prosperous enough that they could have specialists. Yeah. But you would want that for any um, nation. I mean, of course. So you, so, I mean, basically you're going very broad and you cannot think of a specific nation. It's not like, when you sit down and if you were going to play a game based on Marvel superheroes, oh, 
I love Miss Marvel. I want to play Miss Marvel. Okay, I don't care about the rest. I, just, I like Miss Marvel. You can't think of the same thing for like nations. Mm. Well, I've always been interested in the Egyptians and the Romans. Yes. So I think um, those are interesting to me, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe Vikings or um, Greek merchants or something like that. Um, I've always, I guess Atlantis has always perked my interest. Mm, all right. That's, that's a fair one, I think. Um, sure. Why not? I guess the sea tr- traders of Venice have been interesting, especially because they're glass oriented sometimes. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess that would, that would probably be the ones. All right. I honestly, I don't think I, I can't think of one. I can't think of anything I gravitate towards. I'm, I gravitate towards whatever mechanisms they have. Oh, mm-hmm. what makes this one interesting? Mm. You know, me too. The yeah. Gadgets. Yep. It's a good question though. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I wish I could come up with one. I've been sitting here this whole time trying to think of one and I can't. I thought maybe Jen would spur me to something, but she had better answers than I could come up with. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, exterminate is your least favorite of the four X's. Explore, mm. expand, exploit, and exterminate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a civilization-style mm. game. How do you rank the other three? Mm. So, Explores. exploring, Number expanding one. to the place you explored, and then exploiting, getting stuff out of where you've expanded into. Mm. Well, I hate the word exploit. I know, but I mean... They're just using it as a given. Well, it's just because it's always... It's it, it's an old video game term that, you know, it's the four oh. X's. Even though none of those words start with a, it's, it's the four EXs. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, a forex game is one where you explore, then you expand your civilization into where you've explored, then you start exploiting it, and then inevitably you start fighting other players and exterminate them. Yeah. Um, so, what what are you more drawn to? The idea of exploring a new land and seeing what's out there, building up a uh, a thriving society, or running that society and taking it to the next level and making everything nice and efficient. I guess probably I am the efficient one. The, the third, third one. Yeah. So that's the exploiting. I know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yep. Uh, but, you know, ethical exploitation is what you're all about. Well, or it could be that we our civilization has gotten so beautiful and wonderful that now we can um, do art and... Specialize mm-hmm. again. So anyway, so you put exploiting to number one. Mm. All right, now there's the, you wanted to rank them all. Uh, would you rather uh, ex, or exploiting, or would you rather explore or expand? The whole hey, I don't know what's out there, and I'm just a voyage of discovery, or the oh, I found out what's out there. I'm going to start building things on it. Which would you rather do? If you could only do one, a map that's already full and it's waiting for you to build all the infrastructure. Or a map that's empty, waiting for you to find out what's there. Oh, both of those are very appealing. Sure. But you must rank them. Darren has spoken. Okay, I'm going to go with explore and then expand. Explore? Really? I thought for sure you'd be expand. I thought for sure. Yep. Hmm. Okay. Can you say why? Because I'd like to um, explore and see what's out there and maybe claim the good stuff first. Okay. You like the race element of it, you're saying? Yeah. All right. That's interesting. I would probably actually say of the three, I would like expanding the most. Building up a thing. I like to build stuff. Um, and I'm happy with, oh, after I've built it, the game is over. The exploiting is, okay, here's the thing. Now i got to keep 
yeah. using the thing. No, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of ready for the game to be over. Crush you because I've yeah. been more <laughs> if only the game were over now, I might win because I did an amazing <laughs> job of expanding. But she's going to start exploiting if I don't get out of here fast. <laughs> Let's end the game. Yes. Um, what? Yeah. I say. And but and I would actually put exploring at the bottom, uh, just because it's more prone to random chance. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just less drawn to that. Okay. All right. Good question, Darren. Yeah. Uh, righty. Joseph says. Uh, which do you prefer and why? Rollin' rights or flippin' rights? Or flippin' fills, as they're also sometimes called. What's your favorite title from each genre? So, you understand the question? You, you know what a rollin' right is, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm just trying um, to You roll with... some dice. Could be any number of things. You draft them. You group them. Whatever it is. But then, ultimately, they create a random seed of data that you use to write stuff down. Yep. Maybe you're writing maps. Maybe you're filling in things. Maybe you're doing formula. Whatever. But the important thing is you're rolling dice and then writing them down. Okay. The alternative is you're drawing cards. Oh. That's the randomization element. And then, based on what those cards say, you're writing stuff down. Okay. Well, I know you're going to prefer the flip and fold. Whatever it's called. <laughs> mm -hmm. Flip and flop. What, is, what, what did you call it? Uh, uh, well, he called it flip and write. Some people call it flip and fill to keep the alliteration. Roll and write, flip and fill. Yeah. I just call them all roll and writes, and I don't care. And, oh, surprise, there were no dice. It was cards. Who cares? Roll the cards. I don't care. It's they're the same thing. It's almost inconsequential. They are a randomization method. I would like bag and writes. Oh, you pull things out of a bag. Tower and writes. You drop things into a tower and they come out. Any randomization, random and write, they're all the same to me. Okay. But which would you prefer? Well, it seems to me like if you're actually drawing cards, if they're, you know, like something is going on as opposed to just, oh, that's the card with the number six on it. Mm -hmm. um, that actually cards might be a little less luck driven, like rolling die. Yes. Well, the main thing is, yeah, with a deck of cards, you can count cards. You can say, oh, purple hasn't come out yet. Yeah. There's a one in three chance that the next card is going to be purple, and I need to be ready for that. Yep. And you same know. with the tower and drop or whatever oh, it is. Yeah, if it holds, yeah. Yeah. So I think... Um, I would... Come to think of it, why hasn't there been any kind of roll and write with a Shogun Tower for dropping cubes and holding them? How has that not existed yet? That's crazy, now that I think about Get it. Get going, people! Yeah, somebody. But anyway, go on, sorry. Um. So I'm thinking... Oh. And I'm sorry, Gert, you're going to have to go. Oh. Everybody, say hello to Gert. Oh. And Gert's just, what? <laughs> what is going on? You're leaving, Gert. We'll yeah. close the door because you're very distracting. She is distracting. Um, so I think I, with these kinds of games, I think I would prefer to have some kind of game element that's controlled, even though it's a randomizer, <laughs> as opposed to just a rolling of the dice. Okay. So I would think if I know that there's... You know, six purples and six greens and six blues that are going to come out, and sure. you can count them. So you prefer the dice? No, I. Or I'm sorry, I'm the, the the cards. Yes. Yeah. I have to admit, my 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 gut instinct is to go with that as well, but the tactile nature of dice is more fun. It mm. is fundamentally a more fun and engaging activity to roll a die <laughs> or dice. Yeah. The more the better. Than it is to and then you make to um, reveal a card. You make fun of me though with the way I roll my dice. <laughs> it's because you get a little carried away. I like to I also make fun of you for the way you reveal your cards, too. Oh. Because you certainly inherited from your dad that every time you put a card on the table, you have to oh. bend it and so you can <laughs> snap it down and <laughs> warp them all. And uh, I don't know why that's necessary, but you do it. <laughs> you can just take it and you can just put it on the table. It does not have to be warped. You don't have to get that snap sound. See, but that's just the fact that you need to chase that snap sound means you really are missing the tactile nature of rolling a die and making the noise and stuff. Could be, could be, <laughs> yes. Well, it is fun to roll dice, though. Mm -hmm. So, 
I think yeah, it is. But at the end of the day, I think there's still just more you can do. A card can have so many different things on it. A card can have multiple halves. A card can mm. have two sides with multiple things. A card can hint what it's going to be, and then you reveal what it is. A, a, a dice, there's just not that much you can do with them. And while there's no denying they are more fun to roll, there's just not they're they're not as much fun to play with. So I would have to go with flip and fill as well. Okay, well, what's your favorite? What's that? Oh, right. oh, you also asked for favorites. Um, well, you're not going to be able to. Can, can you? Well, okay. Can you think of a? Forget about the the two of each. Just any game where you're writing stuff down. Is there any of them that made a strong enough impression on you that it might actually bubble up to your brain? Oh. And it's fine if not, because this is not your profession. You don't have to memorize yeah, this stuff. I don't know. I'm just looking around. Let's see here. If I come over, you know what I like. Tell me what my favorite would be. Well, I don't know. I've, we've never done a top 10 list of this together. I do hear somebody pawing at the door, I though. I know. Somebody needs us desperately. Is she okay? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need white fur all over this black tabletop. I know. Um, let's see. What was I just going to go for? Oh, I, I was, think that's I Daisy, actually. going to go to advanced search, and I was going to go to owned by Rado, and going to uh, filter by... What's it called? Roll and write. No, it's called uh, because you know there's the roll and write, but there's it's like pen and paper, I think, or paper, or just paper. Is paper in it? Paper and pencil, which of course that's not quite true, but it's as broad as it gets. So off the top of our heads, if everything is labeled correctly, mm. here's the paper and pencer games we have. Pa- pa- paper it? and pemper, popper and poopers <laughs> and poppers. All righty, so. On tour, you remember this one? Oh this, yeah. You remember? Okay, I just do. saying the word on tour. Like it. So that's a pretty strong recommender that just saying the word and it, it, you instantly recognize now, right? Yep. The the fifty one yeah. and the fifteen and yeah, making the yeah. path. Yep, yep. So rolling realms. We just played an expansion of this the other day. The uh, game where there's three different mini games in front of you. Oh yes. No. You like that one? No, no. Okay, on tour. I mean, I liked it, but. You know, I think for you it's going to be on tour when it boils right down to it. Looking through all the ones we've got, and we've got a lot. I'm pretty sure it's going to be on tour. Now, here's the deal. Do you remember playing Sagrada Artisans? You remember Sagrada? That was, that, was that the book Yes, it was a book. Yep, and you were making the uh, stained glass. In the original game, you just drafted dice. They were colorful, and you put the dice out, mm-hmm. and that's what made the pretty stained glass. But then Sagrada Artisans was a legacy game where you were rolling the dice, but then using colored pencils to pencil yeah. in. Yeah, okay. I really liked that game. Yep. Do you, th- really do you think more than uh, on tour? Oh, they're different. They're so different. Yes, they are. There's a lot of really good ones. Yeah. Um, I think on tour is probably going to be. I mean, I don't think there's any other one that you, if if I just say the name of it, you'll instantly know. Well, it's the Sagrada one I did. Uh, I'm just Remember the dinosaur one we played with Zoe and Zane in the RV? That was the dinosaur pen building one. You probably don't remember that. That was a hot day. Um, welcome to the... Mm, yeah. I think for you it's probably going to be on tour. Or maybe Sagrada <laughs> Artisans because of the subject matter. And for me, it's probably, I think... I don't know. I've, I've got all my numbers here. They're well, just not of course, roll through the ages. I love... But I don't know. The, well, the, yeah, but that's how much that is nostalgia. Yeah. I mean, would you rather play roll through the ages or would you rather play on tour? That's a really good game. I'm sorry, but, could you speak up for the mic? But um, 
but this is different than the roll through the ages that we've played. That's a special pen and paper one. No, roll for the. I mean, remember it was it was a it was a it was rolling right. I will show you pictures and it will, it will come back to you. Um, uh, because yeah, it had this thing these these pegboards that you kept track of stuff. Yeah. But it also had these sheets. Oh, Recognize those sheets? Yes. There you go. There's uh, yeah. There was just this intermediate step. There was the rolling. Then there was the pagan, the yeah, the accountant, and then the writing. <laughs> As every great civilization needs an abacus, yeah. and um, yeah. Mm, I do love roll through the ages, but I think in this case I am going to probably go with the tour. On tour yeah. and over Sagrada Artisans. I loved it, but it was a bit same of same through mm-hmm. the whole book. Well, it wasn't fair that we played it back to back over the space. We of did week. have we, to. Do we, it I right. mean, that game should be. Savored like a fine wine over time, and you just play one new mission a week over the course of a year. So, um, and me, I think the highest one I rate is Welcome to the Moon. That's an eight point five nine. Is there any? Is there an eight point six on this page? Oh. No, ex- I'll cast exploring draws. They're an eight point seven. Oh, I remember we drew with the cats on the um, boats, and you wanted to fill rooms. Okay, I didn't think that was going to. I didn't think you were going to remember that at all. You also wanted to draw over the mice. I think it was. That is correct. Wow. Okay. Well, okay. Do you remember it wasn't a roll and write; it was a flip and write. Do you remember that part of the game? The cats? No. The well. See, here's the thing: you might be thinking of the original Isle of Cats instead of Isle of Cats Explore and Draw. Well, I'm remembering the boats and the different shaped rooms in the boats. Right. Yeah. Those are in both games. Oh. The way it works is on your turn. Here are all the different things, and you're going to grab a column. You're going to pick those three, or those three, or those three, and then draw them in your boat. So you might be conflating this in your head with the original tile layer game, which was, geez Louise, Rado, Isle of Cats, Explore. I mean, it's a video. I have all those useless pictures of people baking goods. <laughs> Cat goods. Uh, hey, everybody. Yes. To- Come on. There's Ruel. And so, I mean, yeah, you were drawing um, it all in here, but you, you picked one of these rows or columns. And, uh, hey, these are the different cats, but then you also get different special powers you could grab, too. And so you might be equating it to just Rotto Isle of Cats, which was a card drafting game where you were actually putting mm. tiles out. They're colorful tiles and whatnot. But you did this like Seven Wonders draft. And then, um, you know, based on the resources you got, they were first come, first served to get the cats. And it was still, you're remembering putting them on the ship and covering up the rats yeah. and filling the rooms and all that. Yeah. But do you remember the writing version of it? Or are you remembering more the original can, tile layer version of it? Can you? Um, See, because here I am, I'm, I, you know, I'm saying, hey, that green cat, and I'm making it this weird, funky, I'm I, having to recreate it instead of just getting this tile and putting it on a board. Okay, I I I see that there's a functional difference with the pin, mm-hmm. but what what else? I mean, it's other. Well, the thing the is, I have to pick these three cats, or these two cats in this power, yeah. or this cat, this cat in that power, or these two, this cat, or this cat plus this cat plus this power. Yeah, I know. But and then new stuff will come. And the other one, you were just you had the same. The other one, the other one is from. a much more complicated game. It's I, I you can't just sum it up that easily. There's like. Five different phases every round with a card draft and then gathering resources and then converting those into cages to catch the cats and then finally getting the cats. It was like a very big, uh, whereas this is just okay, simplifies I, and streams it all down to this. I guess I'm remembering this because I don't remember all the cages. Everything I'm just all. talking about? Yeah. Yes. That there were actual cages you had to save up for to be able to get the cats and so. stuff like that. So yeah, okay. Well, but would you put this over on tour then? No. 
Still on tour. Yeah. On tour is the on wiener. On tour is totally different, I think, for most of these rolling rights. Because there was such a, a big area and also working with the numbers and having to be sequential and different routes and, you know. Well, let's see. There's like one more you might remember from looking at it. Rotto Railroad Inc. Let's see if you remember that because we played this one a bit more than the other ones. Come on. So this one... Zoom ahead, where I've actually started building. You're building roads and railroads. Mm -hmm. um, you know, every turn, you roll the dice, and that tells you what kind of roads and railroads are dead ends or whatnot, and you're trying to connect all the outer cities and yeah. stuff like that. And the different maps have all volcanoes that will appear or lakes you're trying to fill in and stuff like that. Yeah. This one, nope. So still, on tour over everything, looks like. Well, this is very true. A traditional, what I think of when I think of roller right. Actually, mm -hmm. I don't really think of on tour as a roll and right, although I, I, I can see that it is, mm -hmm. you know. You are rolling and writing. Yep. But it's not the same kind of thing, I guess. So for me, it's totally different. And and Sagrada really wasn't all that. It wasn't like that either. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's why they stand out more in my mind. Yeah. And all the other ones kind of blend together because they're quite similar. Yeah, and there's lots of them that you could just call spreadsheet games where you've just got like a sheet or sometimes two sheets full of tiny little things and oh I'll fill these three in because that'll give me a thing that lets me fill this in and that's like oh, a yeah. really common there's a lot one? of those there was one where you were on a, a yeah a bunch of different landscapes and sometimes you'd have to get on a bridge to get over the uh, you're describing several different ones I know well for you we're going to stay on tour and for me it looks like my highest rated one is Sagrada Artisans um, because I really did like it and uh and it has so much variety with all those different panes of glass, and they really and they put in a bunch more for the final version. And just right behind it is Isle of Cats, I think. And uh, what's it? The Moon one, the uh, Welcome to the Moon, was also excellent because it's like six different games in one. So I appreciate the hey, you get a lot of variety out of it. Okay, moving right along. Julie says, "What games would you save in a wildfire?" <laughs> Top five, top ten. How do you decide, and would you and Jen agree or have your own lists? Well, what games did you grab? Well, that's the thing. I don't know if Julie knows this. Um, we did actually have to face this question. A wildfire came in less than a half a mile of our house, and we did have to evacuate. And we had less than an hour to get everything we cared about in the universe and drive away. And I did pick a few games. Uh, just a few. And Jen had nothing to do with it. I was busy You're taking care of dogs and, and chickens and, and important papers and the most valuable glass she had. How many hundreds of pounds of glass did we load into the car to drive away? Probably about 200 pounds of glass. Yep. Felt like anyway. Yep. Maybe it was only 100, but yep. there's stuff that I can't, that's not made anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's just rare. Um, but can you think of any games? Well, I would think Glory to Rome because that's not made anymore. Good. Yep, I did grab Glory to Rome. I okay. grabbed our copy of Glory to Rome. Um... Gosh. Would that be your only consideration? Just rarity? Um, I think we've got some that we've, you know, like people have made us painted minis for and things yes. like that. Mm -hmm. So I hope that you grab those. I did not. <gasps> okay. It's a fair point, but honestly, I'm, I am embarrassed to say, and I'm sorry, Leva and others, that did not enter my thought process when we were in trying to do controlled panic mode. <laughs> it just didn't occur to me. Fair enough. Um, I... I well, I guess what would keep what us about, happy... What about the original coffee of Pandemic that we played on the road to of France? Of course, we must take that. Well, I mean, it didn't occur to you until I said it. Well, I was just going to say, what games would you want to be playing 
in the aftermath of losing everything in our lives, mm-hmm. except what we've got with us. Mm-hmm. So, pro- you know, probably just our top 10 games each. Okay. Because that would be what we But most of them you can just get, and in theory, we'll get insurance money. Although we found out afterwards we were not going to get insurance money. Oh my gosh. Jeez Louise. Folks, that's not a game-related question, but if you want to know, send questions to questionsrado.com and, hey, what was Rado talking about not getting insurance money when your house almost burned down? That's a whole story. Yeah. But anyway. Um... Gosh, I don't know. I I guess you must have... You got Glory to Rome. That's the single most valuable one we have. It'll never exist again. Yeah. And it's a really good game. Yeah. Honestly, that was my thought process. I grabbed Glory to Rome. Yeah. I grabbed Shadowrun Crossfire. um, because Also because it was super tiny. I grabbed Runebound 3rd Edition because I have the... I forget what it's called. Shattered Bonds expansion, which is incredibly rare and goes for like four or five hundred bucks on eBay and stuff like that. Wow. Although, not for us. I mean, we liked the game, but I probably would have left it. But because there's somebody who's contacted me and said, Hey, Rada, would you sell that to me? Because I can't get it. I'm like, okay, yeah, dude, I'll sell it to you for retail. And I'm like, so I'm still just, I'm like, oh, crap. I wouldn't be able to send that to him if I if it could burn down. So I guess I better grab that one. And then the only other things I grabbed besides those three things were games we haven't played yet that publishers have sent us. And I'm like, oh, crap. Well, I mean... I'd feel bad if I did not cover this game, even if I only have to do it with my phone because I didn't grab any of my equipment for filming or my <laughs> microphones or anything. Yeah. But I did have a phone, and I'd be able to continue to do my job and cover these games. So literally, I grabbed about 20 games of all sizes that were just on the shelf in the other room that is the shelf of, hey, here's all the stuff that's in the queue that we have to play so I can film it because publishers have sent it. And I just felt an obligation mm-hmm. Because I would I would have felt bad if they'd sent it and they burned up and before we'd had a chance to cover them in some form. So that was really my consideration. Uh, two incredibly rare ones, and I did not grab the pandemic one. Well, you're right. If it's something we can get, we don't have to have the one we. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not that. Honestly, I'm simply not that sentimental. Yeah. I mean, it it's meaningful, and I I you know. Given time, I might have thought about, yeah, I really should grab that too because of the meaning it has for us. And maybe a couple others like that. But in the real moment when we're like, okay, we got to go. We have to go. We have to, or why are we not gone yet? Yeah. Um, I was like, well, okay, money. That one costs 300 That one costs 400 I promised this guy. And, oh, uh, I would feel bad if I did not make good to these publishers who sent us these review copies of games. So that's how it worked. And um, there you go. We didn't bring very many though. Okay, and that's it for games, folks. And this is the point where some of you will say, "Bye bye, we've already had enough non-gamey stuff in the game section, thank you. <laughs> I don't even want to know what happens in that personal section. If so, thanks for watching or listening, and have a nice day. Talk to you there so long, bye-bye. But otherwise, folks, if you're ready, hang on, and we'll get to the personal questions right after this. Okay, folks, welcome back to the personal cues. And we're going to start out with Daniel. And, folks, I should warn you, Daniel's doing some heavy-hitting stuff. Uh, I was kind of thinking about maybe I should move all this stuff into another section and put it at the end because some people just, I know, just don't want to hear about this political stuff. But we'll see how it goes. Anyway, Daniel says, in episode 98, you said something like, my side doesn't say white people are inherently racist. Your side lies to you. Yeah, that sounds about right. Although I then, I believe there's further talk about how, hey, maybe we're on the same side, which is a good underlying message to have. Anyway, though. I sent you an article where your side does say white people are inherently racist. Your response technically is, I don't say anything. I didn't say anything. That's untrue. Everybody is inherently racist. I'm confused. All right. Then what was that article? It was the... I remember it was on CNN, right? 
I wonder if it's still in my search history. If I do CNN, there it is. CNN, white fragility, Robin D'Angelo. Okay, Daniel, I know I just brushed over very quickly. Let's dig into that one a little bit more. All right, bringing it back. Robin D'Angelo, how white fragility supports racism and how whites can stop it. CNN. If you're a white person in America, social justice educator Robin D'Angelo has a message for you. You're a racist. Pure and simple. Without a lifetime of conscious effort, you will always be. You just can't help it, you see? Because you've been swaddled in a cocoon of white privilege since you came out sputtering out of your mother's womb, protesting the indignity of all. You uh, may be indignantly sputtering right now at this insult to your humanity. How could you be racist? You have black colleagues and consi- you consider friends. You don't see skin color. You never owned slaves. You marched in the 60s. You protest today against the uniform bad apples and the power of their authority to smother minority lives and minority rights. How dare you say I'm anything like them, you grumble, as you pull your cloak of your bruised and fragile feelings around you. Now, Daniel, I don't know if you read as far as I just did. I don't know if you read it with the intonation I did. Everything at the beginning of this article is a thought exercise, and that is revealed here. And there, with that simple act, you personify the theme of D'Angelo's best-selling t- 2018 book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. See, here's the deal. Y- this article, I remember I, I remember I talked about this and said, well, basically, this takes clickbait to the next level because it's clickbait at the beginning of the article, but it's with a point. This article is ironically misquoting Robin D'Angelo saying that she says all these terrible things about you and that you just immediately curl up into a ball and get hyper defensive that you exhibit signs of white fragility and here's the trick Daniel if you read the rest of this article and the actual interview with the author let alone if you literally read her book you will find at no time anywhere in this article, is it stated that all people are all white people are racists? It's only stated in this beginning to engender within you, Daniel, a gut check. No, I'm not. How dare you say I'm racist? And that's the point that white fragility is a subject matter to do with the fact that um, the that the liberal. Um, conservative, progressive, doesn't matter that a lot of white folks, when presented with the fact, this article never says that white people are racist. It does repeatedly point out ways that white people benefit from systemic racism. And it may be even through their lives been subject to racist conditioning because of the circumstances of their life. Um, Not that they themselves are racist, but that they have been become part of a racist system. And what that observation, which is just an observation of fact, pure, simple fact, historical, easily provable fact, is immediately interpreted, Daniel, as, how dare you say I'm racist? I'm not racist. You're the racist for saying I'm racist. And that is the exhibition of what is commonly referred to as white fragility, fragility, which is what her book is about. So Daniel, I'm sorry you're confused, but your example of an article that says you personally are racist because you're a white person, you didn't read the article, Daniel. You didn't. You missed the entire point. And in fact, Daniel, you proved the point of the article because you come back month after month with more questions about, really? Am I really racist, Rado? Really? Just because I'm white? I'm like, Dude, 
Um, stop being so fragile. Stop being so precious about this. Let's just look at the data, look at the facts with wide open eyes and accept that things have been screwed up for a lot of people for a long time. And the only way things will get better is if we acknowledge that all assets of that. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person if up until now you refuse to acknowledge or you failed to acknowledge or you couldn't acknowledge. It only means you're a bad person if once you are presented with these facts, you continue to refuse to acknowledge. Then you become part of the problem. And I'm not saying you're part of the problem, Daniel, because to be fair, you're here, you're talking to me, and I think that's great. And I'll keep trying to talk to you about it. But hopefully I explain the purpose of this article a little bit better. That, that opening paragraph was trying to prove a point, Daniel. Okay, related to question number one. If I think that all people are inherently racist on some level, which is something I talked about last, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's implicitly part of our human nature that we are a tribal species and that we look for anything we can on a guttural, instinctual level to separate us from other people and bind us to other people. And unfortunately, for no good reason at all, skin color is one of the ones that we really gravitate to for a heck of a lot. And it shouldn't be. Um, but anyway, so um, if I say everyone's racist, um, but uh, not KKK racist then what do you call KKK racism then? Doesn't the word racist lose meaning if everyone's racist? Daniel, does the word hot lose meaning if you can have something, if you can, if you can say, wow, it's really hot out, it's 80 degrees, or you can say, wow, that soup is really hot, it's 250 degrees. Has the word hot lost meaning there? Because hot can represent a very wide and broad spectrum of topics. I don't think so. I think you still know what hot means. And I think you understand what hot means in both of those very, what's the word? Relative. Relative, uh, situational, contextual uses. If you, if I use the word hot with context around it, if I'm talking about the temperature on a summer day, or I'm talking about soup right out of the microwave or whatever, or coffee, you understand that hot can mean a different range. The same thing can be true if I'm talking about people who benefit from, you know, systemic racism and don't realize it or who have fundamental human biological drives as opposed to people who through a lifetime of ignorance and misery have fallen into a trap of blaming others for their suffering and have turned that into violence. I think you can understand that when I'm talking about these two different things using the same word, there are contextual cues, right? Okay. Anna Kasparian, uh, you never heard the situation that I mentioned where, remember this was the thing about a, pr a formerly fairly well-known newscaster who's known for her progressive ideals um, is now starting to switch over to the right. Uh, and I talked about how, well, I just can't take her seriously. Remember the, the bonus holes? You remember the bonus holes, right? And so I told that story. Daniel saying he hasn't heard of the bonus hold story, but I meant doing an interview where she said that she parroted extreme right, left-wing disinformation without checking facts. And one of the things she mentioned was Kyle Rittenhouse. Did you hear about that? And what are your thoughts? My thoughts are, the reason I mentioned that story is because I did start to watch that interview she did. And within 15 minutes, she told the bonus hole story. And she literally unthinkingly spread a hurtful right-wing lie without even doing the tiniest bit of fact-checking. And I realized, oh, 
If, the, if you're here doing that, and you're spreading this lie to literally millions of people without even spending 10 seconds it takes to do a Google search to realize that it was all a bunch of lies that you are now parroting, I don't care what you have to say about anything else. Anything else you say is now suspect, or sus, as the kids say. So yes, I, I did not continue watching. I did not hear what she had to say about Kyle Rittenhouse. So no, I cannot answer your question as to what your thoughts are on that. My feelings are Kyle Rittenhouse should not have been carrying around a um, machine gun in the middle of a uh, protest, I think. And if anybody does that, bad things are going to happen. And people have to face the consequences of their actions. And quite frankly, Kyle Rittenhouse did not face the consequences of his actions. That's my thought on that. I don't know what Anna Kasparian thinks. I don't care what she thinks because she lost all legitimacy when she started spreading the bonus holes lie. And it showed just how she was not willing to do even the most basic, bare-bones, simple research possible. Okay. Four. If someone agrees with you on most of your positions uh, about what's wrong with America, it needs to improve. Systemic racism, transphobia, homophobia, denying bodily autonomy to women, the environment, etc., well, first of all, I say, welcome to the party, pal. But anyway, continuing on. But disagrees on how to deal with it. Is that person right-wing? I don't know. Depends on how they want to deal with it. If, uh, if they want to deal with it through capitalism and the marketplace of ideas, and don't worry, corporations will take care of it for us, then yeah, they're still pretty right-wing. They're, they're, they're right-wing with their heart in the right place. But unfortunately, they have bought into a bunch of BS uh, that is holding us back as a species. Which I, I talked about this at great length in the AI section of the game portion of the video. So, I don't know what to call them. I mean, no one person is... You know, I mean, well, that's not true. There are pure avatars of right-wingness and left-wingness and extreme right-wingness and left-wingness. But no, every, for the most part, everybody's a combination of traits. So... Probably not. But you haven't told me everything there is to say about this hypothetical person. Um, so you'd have to give me some more data there, Dana. Daniel. Now, number five. When ordinary Americans, uh, a.k.a. those not too deep into identity politics... Okay, I'm going to stop you right there, Daniel. All politics are identity politics. Everything in politics is about humanity. Humans are driven by identity. It is one of the fundamental differentiations between us as a species that we have sentience, that we have a sense of who we are and what we are and what values we hold and we don't work on pure instinct. And because all of politics is about navigating and moderating the interactions between people, and everything to do with a human is to do with their own personal sense of self and identity. Therefore, there is no such thing as non-identity politics. All politics are identity politics. Because all politics are about how people interact with each other. And we are all identity driven. Okay, let's continue. So I'm just going to say, because um, you could have easily, just easily said, AA people who are not into politics. And I would have said, yeah, fine. The normies. Fair enough. They got other crap to deal with. I totally get it. <laughs> so let's just say that's what you said. And the re Plus, the rest of the world here, white people are inherently racist. We should allow people who are biologically male into women's spaces, sports restrooms. I, can I can't define what a woman is, etc. How do you think that comes off to the rest of them? Um, I think when you tell lies about people, people get the wrong impression about those people. 
not surprisingly. And you have just listed a bunch of right-wing lies that are constantly spread. You've given me one example that I was able to easily debunk because, I'm sorry, Daniel, it looks like you didn't actually read the article that was your primary example. You read the first paragraph and stopped reading. At least that's my assumption. Because if you read to the fourth paragraph, you would have seen that the first three paragraphs were a thought exercise to prove a point, and you took them as a lie that you are then using as an example of proof of a lie that you were propagating. Because you believe that lie, I'm assuming, Daniel, I don't know you in real life, because you've heard that lie spread so long and so insipidly. And um, if somebody hears that lie, a crazy lie, a ridiculous lie, a lie that's not true, that is representing something that people on the left don't say, and um, then, does that sound crazy to people? Sure, yeah. I could I come up with all kinds of lies that sound crazy to people. So, um, now, your second question, are they right-wing, if that seems kind of crazy to them? No, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters what you do. And so, if somebody hears a lie like that, um, and they think a certain thing, I'm not going to cast judgment on them yet. I'm going to cast judgment on them and say, yeah, you're pretty right-wing, or at least you're doing the work of the right-wing if the act they choose to do, like Anna Kasparian, is to absorb that lie, don't apply any critical thinking to it, don't apply any research to it, and then spread that lie as if it's the truth, even though it's very easily disprovable. That then... Whether it makes you right-wing or not is immaterial. I genuinely don't care. All I do know is, by spreading that lie, you are hurting marginalized people. People whose lives are literally in danger, you are making them worse. And therefore, I condemn you for it. For not taking the time to go to Google and do some simple searches to find out the truth. Because the lie, you've heard it so much, it just makes sense that somebody would say something so crazy, that is obviously so crazy. Daniel, what if the thing that sounds so crazy to you sounds crazy because nobody ever actually said it, and instead you were told a lie that people said it? Just putting that back to you, Daniel. Anyway, I assume, honey, you have nothing to say about that. You're looking for some words of wisdom for later on. But Darren, in the meanwhile, has a philosophical question varying into sci-fi. Oh. But Daniel says, so, Rado, you want to live forever. Assuming the human brain has limited space for memories, um, which I think is a fair assumption. I mean, I, I can guarantee that's an assumption because that's something I live with my, every day of my life. Ah, uh, you might make different choices on what you want to spend your brain power well, on. Let's see what Daniel has okay. to say. Uh, Darren. Uh, Darren. Darren. Oh, I'm sorry, Darren. 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 You will have to forget a lot if a person is the sum of their memories. At some point, you'll be a different person to who you are today. Does that concern you? Would you take steps to revert that, like keeping a diary? Or we'd be happy to change over time. Darren, That's a great question. That is freaking deep. That has got to be one of the deepest questions anybody has ever asked me in my life. And I love it. I love it, Darren. Um, it's sheep, it's ship of Theseus time. You know that you know the ship of Theseus, right? No. It's the uh, I don't know, it's from Aristotle or something. A uh, ship, they have to replace the mast. And then they have to replace the bow. And then they have to replace oh, right. the planks. And eventually, not a single thing remains. Is it still the ship of Theseus? You know. Yep. 
Um, One of the greats, one of the all-time greats. And I've never heard it applied to a person quite like that. That is beautiful and brilliant. I love it. Um, And I don't know what to say. Uh, I can say, first of all, your supposition is 100% true. Yes, we have... Not we, we it feels like we have infinite possibilities of synaptic connections we can make, but we don't. They are not, and they break down, and um, we are imperfect machines. There's a few of us who are perfect brain machines. Mary Lou Henner, the actress. Remember seeing that um, 60 Minutes story mm-hmm. about Mary Lou Henner, the actress from Taxi, and other people who can literally, with pitch-perfect recall, remember everything. The day they were born, the day they skinned their knee when they were six years old, everything. Wow. Uh, they, they can tell you any number they ever saw in their life. I mean, oh. uh, on any piece of paper, you know, it's just ridiculous. I don't think They're, I saw that 60 uh, No, you know, we watched it together and we were both floored. And I'm exaggerating. Maybe it doesn't go that far, but it goes, uh, goes very much towards that. And there are some people whose brains can do that, but most people, of course, can't because our synaptic connections break down over time. And, you know, we, we, we just don't have the gene that allows that to happen. Although, who knows? Maybe it's all there and we just can't get to them. And maybe we'll eventually invent a drug that lets us get all that stuff. Yeah, you know, because we the, use like 5% of our brains. That's not true. We use all of our brain. It's just that at any given time, only a certain percentage of it is firing. But at any, I mean, you know, hey, this five percent's going over here, and then in the next millisecond, this twenty percent over here is going. So that's that's, that's a widely um, that's a lie. <laughs> no, Daniel, it's a lie. You don't use only five percent of your brain. You use all of your brain. It's just you don't use all of it all the time. Anyway, sorry. Um, what was I saying? Uh, so yeah. And I can say that because obviously I don't remember. I remember very little of my childhood. Now, here's the deal. I would love to remember more of my childhood. I would be amazing. I would love to be able to get in a time machine or take a pill that lets me get access to maybe those synapses are still connected and I just other synapses can't reach those connections. I would love to have the Mary Lou Hannah brainery. That would be amazing. But I go about my day-to-day life and it doesn't really bother me at all. It doesn't get in my way. And as time goes on, I remember less and less of my teen years. And as time goes on, I imagine I'll remember less and less of my 20s. And as time goes on, if I live to be a million, I'll remember less and less of my 400,372s. <laughs> and I will change as a person. I think that's actually really exciting. I think uh, it's, 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 it's a part of the whole you know, immortality thing that's never occurred to me before. That you know, when you're a million, I mean, what, what really defines me? What I mean, I, I there are some things I imagine I won't forget that you know fundamental pillars of who I am because that's less about memory and more about just raw base instinctual drives and urges and intuitions. Or I, things that have been important enough that you've learned in your life that have become part of you. Yeah, that you know because and they and they literally won't go away because my brain has categorized them differently because they def, because they define my identity. Because we are creatures that are defined by our identities. Um, uh, let's see. So I guess I'm not concerned. And if anything, I'm kind of excited. Who will I be at 500,000? That's amazing to me. That makes the idea of a, I mean, I've always thought, I mean, I mean I, I'll never run out of things to experience. Yeah. Um, you know, on this planet, let alone in this universe. Uh, let alone just within the realm of what human beings can create. I, it's impossible. There's literally an infinity of experiences I could have. And it never occurred to me, till your question, Darren, that I, myself, will create an infinity of things to experience because I will change. That's amazing. I love it. You have any thoughts about that, Hey Pie? 
Um, I think, I think that his idea of like keeping a diary or whatever is important maybe as you grow. Mm -hmm. So you can look back and not totally forget other things. I agree. Yeah. But yeah, I think everybody's always changing anyway. And so that does make sense that it would happen over thousands of years. Yeah. 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 I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, I've often thought I should be keeping a journal because I'm too manly to keep a diary. Come on, man. <laughs> journal. Um, but I've always just been too lazy to do it. And every time I think about it, you know, what's it? The uh, Is it the sunk cost fallacy? That No, no. It's, it's, it's something akin to that. That Well, I didn't start. So now it's too late. I can't start now. <laughs> I had to start when, it, when, when I had important things to think and do and say. And since I didn't do it now, I might as well not do it now. And that's ridiculous and that's absurd. And I know that. But I still can't do it. But... What do you think we're doing right now, buddy? You've just become a part of my permanent... 500,000 years from now, I might stumble across this conversation. And I mean, Darren, who is Darren? I don't know, but wow, what an interesting thought. Who was I 500,000 years ago? Let's watch some more of these videos. So I guess I'm kind of lucky in that regard yeah. that this is kind of happening. Yeah. Uh, if only I'd started sooner. Um, Jen, I know in the past has done diary entries and you've started and you've stopped and you've yeah. started and you've stopped. Yep. So why didn't you keep going at it? Um, I think because the things that you want to remember are like when you're traveling and you're experiencing new things or whatever. But a lot of our lives are the same thing every day, every day, every day. Yeah. And so doing something like a gratitude journal is a really great way to make the days differentiate from themselves so that you are consciously deciding what to keep in your brain and what to reinforce and those pathways and everything. And so I've tried to keep a gratitude journal in the past, but every day it's the same thing. Oh, beautiful flowers. Oh, the puppies were fantastic. Oh, husband did something wonderful for me. Or, you know, it's uh, so I got kind of bored with it because it was just, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I've got a great life. And, um, you know, it was a bit samey samey. So um, the, the, the travel journal, though, seems to work really well. And one of the nice things about technology right now, for example, is if you back up your photos on OneDrive and probably other services as well, is they'll say, you know, what was going on in your life on this day and whatever they've got stored for the last 20 years, you can go back and look at the, like the pictures that you took. Yeah, you're addicted to that yeah, memory really... pop-up that comes in Windows 10 now that seems like once or twice a week it'll say, here's what you were doing 10 years ago because yeah. it happened to have some pictures in the cloud. And then that'll take you down a half an hour. Oh my God, look at all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is pictures of glass that I, you know. <laughs> I a lot of our pictures on our cloud. <laughs> our game boxes and glass. We have enough pictures on the cloud of uh, Jen's game art that we could probably train mid-journey on it, quite frankly. Mm. I don't know what mid-journey is. Uh, it's, it's okay. Okay. It's a reference to earlier in the podcast. Okay. So, um, yeah. So that's my thought about it is I think if you want to remember things and reinforce those things, then yes, doing some kind of a journal or something like that would be beneficial to you. Yep. So, for example, I made a journal entry when Tula died about mm -hmm. all the things that I wanted to remember about Tula. That's beautiful. All righty. Um, Joseph says, what is your favorite film or TV show where English is not the primary language. Oh. Gosh. I know there was one that we really enjoyed, and I wish I could remember what it was now. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, it was a couple of years ago we watched it. Are you talking about the French show Lupin? The Thief? Yeah, that might be it. And I think, I think it was it. long. I'd have to look at it. But it was... Hmm. 
There was something we had to watch with subtitles on. Yeah, yeah. No, there's been a few shows. Uh, right, there's Lupin. There's yeah. Omar Sy, you, you know. Yep. There he is. You know, doing all his heisty, you know, he got out of jail and, um, you know, got involved in trying to plan a heist of a art facility and he had a son and stuff like that, mm-hmm. as I recall. Yeah. Yeah. So we watched that. I know we liked that. That could be it. Um, and then we also watched that show, I want to say it was German. Again, it was on Netflix and it was about the, it was the disaster show about a bunch of people on a plane and they are constantly going west Oh. Because the sun was just instantly killing everybody. Because I, nobody knew quite why it was, if there's some atmospheric disturbance or something like that. But if the sun hit you, you would die. And they, you know, it was like this worldwide catastrophe. Millions of people were dying, and it all focused on this one plane that was just doing everything it could just to keep flying west, no matter what. Um, I remember and, that show, but I don't remember it being in German. Uh, it, it was in a foreign language. I want to say German. It might have been something else. Hmm. And we did, I remember we would switch back and forth. Because you wanted to watch it with the dubbing. And I'm like, oh, this is terrible with the dubbing. It's horrible. <laughs> and so then we'd watch a couple shows with it in German. He's like, can we, do, can we go back to the English? And we went back and forth. So probably didn't make as uh, strong an impact on you. I don't remember what the name of that show was. Netflix show about plane flying west to avoid sun. Uh, that was Into the Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was pretty good. Um, and I do not remember what language it was originally. But I want to say German. Belgian. It was Belgian. Um, based on a 2015 Polish science fiction novel. And of course I watched the... I forget what it's called. The one that everybody in the universe watched from Korea. The Hunger Games-ish one. Um, about the rich and poor. I, I can't I can't even... That, that was cool. I have to admit, we don't watch very many of them, though. Uh, it doesn't come up. Let's see. Most popular recent shows uh, in foreign language streaming. Give me a list of that. I tried watching Dark. It was too slow-paced. I couldn't do it. I heard nothing but great things about it. I tried watching Money Heist. I couldn't get into it. Uh, so probably not very many. Can you just think of any foreign language films, Honey Pie? And not just, you know, recently, unless you've been growing up. Mm. They really made a big impact on you. Um, no, I can't. There's nothing that's popping up. All right, I know of one. I can't remember the name, but I'm looking for it. The Lives of Others. When I saw The Lives of Others back in 2006, apparently, I think if you go, if you were to go to, I haven't posted on Twitter for over a year, but if you go back to the early post, one of the first posts I ever did on Twitter is, I, I think Lives of Others might be the greatest movie I've ever seen. It was so amazing. Hmm, we should watch it. I don't know if it's for you, but maybe we could. So I'm going to say The Lives of Others. Um, and more recently, uh, we both really like Lupin. But yeah, it's, it's not something that comes up very often, and we probably should do more. It's certainly easy enough to do it now. Okay, next up, Richard. Ha- I've been following you for five years, and as much as I... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Well, this is from Richard. From Richard to Richard. As much as I love your content, you massively frustrate me at times. Why is it that white folk like to talk so much about their white privilege? <laughs> I'm mixed race, black, white, and in all my 37 years on this planet, I can honestly say I don't feel like my color has held me back once. Well, Richard, I think that's amazing, and I am so happy for you. But I would like to point out, you might be the exception to the rule. 
Anyway, though, um, I do find it insulting when white privilege is brought up. Do you honestly think you have an advantage over me in general? Maybe it's different in the U.S., but in the U.K., I don't feel like it's the case. Richard, but, uh, you know, let's... Okay, I'm going to Google. Google. All right, no, I don't have to Google Google. Um, <laughs> U.K., systemic racism, um, black... Let's just do incarceration. Incarceration, if I can spell incarceration. All righty. UK failing to address systemic racism against black people. Systemic racism in the UK criminal justice system is a serious... All right. It's not going to be very hard for you, Richard, if you want to look beyond your own personal life story, which honestly, again, I am so happy for you, man, that you have not had the problems that a lot of your fellow human beings have suffered um, because they have not been as privileged as you. I don't know why. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know where you are. Honestly, you say you're mixed race. I don't know how light-skinned or dark-skinned you are. There's a lot of things that can contribute to your life experiences that could be radically different to the life experiences of others. Um, And so... I'm just going to go with the criminal justice statistics that can prove definitively. And a simple Google search will give you um, ample resources from trustworthy sources. Don't go look at, oh gosh, what's the equivalent of the National Enquirer? Is it the World Report? I forget. I used to know what the British rags were that were all yeah. right wing. The Daily the Daily News, I think. Is that what it is? The Tele... Yeah, but regardless, mm. go, you know, go to The Guardian... Do a search for systemic racism and spend a half an hour reading. And I think you will find that there are people who are suffering where you do not suffer. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry if that annoys you to hear about it. But, dude, what you should be wishing for is that everybody should have the privilege that you've enjoyed. When I talk about my white privilege, and all the benefits that I have had over my life, it is me acknowledging the fact that I have had them where others have not. And it is not wrong at all that I have had those privileges and I have benefited from them. What's wrong is that everybody else didn't benefit from them as well. And that's the way the world needs to change. So everybody has the same awesome white dude privileges, because I've got more privileges coming out my ears than, what, 80% of the population of the planet Earth because of history, because of systemic issues that have been propped up, and because of powers that hold on to them desperately. And I think it's important to articulate those and address them and not call for people not to have them, but for everybody to have them equally. Anyway, though. Um, I do find it in... All right, okay. Uh, the issue is class, but that's a topic for another day. Dude, it's the same topic. It's the same topic. Um, and you know what? Hey, if you want to meet me in the middle and make it class-focused rather than race-focused, I'm down to clown, baby. That works great for me, too. Because at the end of the day, the number one driver of all of humanity's problems is wealth inequality. That's what it boils right to. Now, what brought about wealth inequality? It's not as simple as that. And a large portion of it is systemic racism. And systemic racism still props up that, um, you know, that wealth inequality. But yeah, at the end of the day, 
everything comes back to wealth inequality. Global warming comes back to wealth inequality. Education comes back to wealth inequality. Uh, at the end of the day, if this wealth could truly be distributed equally among everyone, don't get me wrong, there'd still be problems. I know that. We are monkeys with monkey brains or lizard brains. We're monkeys with lizard brains and we still have drives that work against our own betterment and the betterment of our fellow man. And so that's hard to let go, but that's all the more reason to talk about it and identify it so that we aren't driven by it subconsciously. So anyway, I'm sorry it bugs you, but I appreciate that you're still along for the ride, buddy. Question for Jen. She said uh, that the first time she saw a black guy in the UK, she was surprised when he spoke. What did Jen think he would sound like? As black isn't a type of voice. I don't know if you want me... Um, it is. It's, it's actually... Dude, do a search for... I've seen videos about this. A-A-V-E. African-American vernacular English? Is that what it is? I'm going to look it up now. A-A-V-E Wikipedia. Do this search with me, Richard. African-American vernacular English. Although, actually, the first thing it says is, yes, I forgot. Uh, it's, it's gotten more broadly inclusive. Not to be confused with African-American English. Richard, for starters, I would suggest going to Wikipedia and reading the article about African-American English. Um, and, uh, and uh, right. Actually, for the, majority, yeah, for the mi minority group in Britain, see Black British people. There's probably some really interesting reading over there as well. But African-American English, or AAE as it is known in linguistic and um, academic circles, also known as Black English or Black American English in the branch of American linguistics, is a set of English sociolects. Uh, so not just dialects, as simple as that, but dialects driven by socioeconomic situations. Spoken by most black people in the United States and many in Canada, most commonly it refers to a dialect continuum ranging from African-American vernacular English to a more standard American English. And so to answer your question, yes, black is, it's not a type of voice, it is a type of dialect. And you're right, it is definitely much more prominent in America than it is in England. Um, because England is such a weird, weird melting pot, hodgepodge of all kinds of accents and dialects and all that. But anyway, yes, Jen had preconceived notions. I don't know if you have anything to say to that. Yeah, and uh, that's just, that was used actually in his example of not knowing. Of you being wrong. Yeah, You, you were being... pointing that out. Yeah. Not to say, oh, and this is the way it should be, no. but rather... How embarrassed you were. Exactly. And I didn't realize until this happened to me. That you carried this around with exactly. you. These subconscious preconceptions you have about people. Yes. Those that were born of her privilege as a white lady. Um, and her life experiences that were all determined in part and influenced by the fact that she is a white lady. Now, Richard, I'll grant you, she's also a comfortably middle-class white lady, right? And so that comes into it too. Make no mistake about it. But the simple fact of her being a white lady really puts her in a much more statistically likelihood to be in that comfortable middle class that gives her those life experiences that leads her to have an embarrassing moment of self-realization. Yes. 
Thank you for phrasing it that way, because it was astonishingly embarrassing. Yeah. And, and honey, it is very brave of you to even talk about it publicly. Well, I, we're not going to have any progress until people start talking about stuff, That's right? why, and that, Richard, is why we talk about this stuff. Because instead, we could just shut up about it and stop talking about it, and then nothing will ever change. You know? And here's the thing. Um, one, I'm, one of my favorite Hillary Clinton quotes. Oh, no! Hillary Clinton, the demon. I, th- I thought Rottos are progressive. Well, anyway, uh, she was talking with some young progressives after a speech she gave somewhere, and they were giving her the business about, why aren't you out there changing heart and minds? And I loved her response was, I'm not here to change heart and minds. I'm here to change laws. Um, because at the end of the day, human beings are not predisposed to look at and address their shortcomings. To say, oh my gosh, I've been wrong my entire life. I have been the very happy and very fortunate recipient of a whole lot of privileges. And where did they all come from, I wonder? You know, most people aren't ready to do that. It's just inherently in our nature to not want to admit that a fundamental pillar of what we thought our identity was gave us unfair advantages. We think everything we got in our life was based on merit. And that's not the case. I don't even know how many invisible doors were held open for me my entire life because of the color of my skin. And I could just pretend that didn't happen, but that's not going to tear down those doors that still stay closed for so many other people. And Richard, all you got to do is just some basic Google searches from trusted sources, and you'll find I'm not making it up. But anyway... I know there's no malice in anything Jen said. I'm just curious if you understand how it comes across to people that the topic actually affects. Now, Richard, I would love to hear from you how that comes across to you. Yes. I would love to know. Come back, baby. Yes. Come back next month. Um, I can, I mean, because, but do understand and, and appreciate that you appreciate that Jen has no malice in her heart. But it doesn't change the fact that she still, like all of us, carry around preconceived notions born of the life we've lived and the experience we've had. And in some cases, the genetics we have as well, because there's the whole nature versus nurture uh, discussion as well. And I'm a huge fan of, you know, we are driven by our nature as much as our nurture. And, you know, it's, and we have to shake those off, um, which means we have to talk about them. We have to, if we just pretend they're not there, we'll just continue carrying them around and nothing will change. Nothing will get better. Okay. Quick question though. Totally changing the topic. How much inspiration did you take from Metal Gear for Siphon Filter? I always thought Leon Zing versus Mai Ling was a little on the nose. Um, buddy, you must be new here. And again, welcome to the party. I know I've talked about this several times in the podcast over the years, but honestly, I've done a bunch of interviews about this too. Just go to YouTube. Oh, hold on a second. Let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. Alrighty. Uh, YouTube. Rado Siphon Filter. No, not Rado. Richard Ham. I'm really not that widely known as Rado in the video game sphere. Richard Ham. And okay, yeah, the very first one. The two, the first two are both great. Oh, here's this one with a Russian title. But that they, Russian sent me some, you know, questions and I answered them. Um, or you can watch this missile silo with Richard Ham, Siphon Filter. Probably even the AMA one as well. Watch any of those. I tell the story and um, not influenced at all. In fact, it was a ridiculous series of coincidences that almost destroyed me and everybody I worked with. 
Uh, probably, I would suggest the Missile Silo. This was basically, Missile Silo was the last level of the original Siphon Filter, and there was a guy who was playing through every single level of Siphon Filter with his friends. It was called Siphon Filter and Friends. And every t week he'd have another, and I started watching halfway through, and I said, oh, dude, I'm so enjoying this. By the way, I was the lead designer on Siphon Filter. And he freaked out and said, dude, <laughs> you have to be my friend on the final episode. Oh. And so we did, and we watched, and he, he played it, and I gave a lot of behind the scenes of the making of that particular level. And then we did like an hour just talking about the game. And I answer your question very directly with a lot of, I think, very entertaining <laughs> stories about the development of that game. Or the Sight Filter AMA is me and John Garvin, who was the lead artist, I was the lead designer, getting together for the first time in probably 20 years and just reminiscing about the making of the game, too. I think some of it would come up there also. I'm sure we talked about Metal Gear Solid in the AMA, but really, Missile Silo with Richard Hamm, Siphon Filter and Friends... Uh, if you got the time, you'll enjoy it, I think. Okay, um, let's see. And I think that's it, Honey Pie, except we do have... Oh, we have dogs? We have one doggo picture. Oh, goody, goody, goody. But before the doggos, you must pay the piper and give some words of wisdom. Okay, well, I my words of wisdom this time... Here, this. Read it yourself. The book about... Oh, you got it. This is the book you got from the library? Yeah. Have you already started reading it? Yes. And you have some quotes from it already? No, I just want to... Pointed out to people, it's the first book of three. This one was written in 2012 and updated in 2014. So while I'm reading it now, I am feeling my heart filled back up with hope. Ah. It's lovely. And then there are two other books that they've done sequentially. Uh, this last is one. authors Peter Diamatis and Steve Coulter. Yep. Um, so anyway, if you're just feeling as dismayed and as depressed and as hopeless as I have been feeling about the state of... Humanity. Humanity. Um, I would I would say already this is a good read and it's making me feel better. All right. And it's giving me, you know, some some hope for the future. All right. So this you don't get words of wisdom. You get a book of wisdom this month, folks. A band abundance. The future is better than you think. New York Times bestseller. Okay, that'll do, honey. Yes. It's the return oh. of Charlie and Skye. <laughs> Look at them. They're Look wonderful. at them. I love that. Thank you, Nigel. Happy, happy. It was a heavy episode. So it is always good to end on a picture of two gorgeous Labradors just being goofy pups in a field of flowers. Daisies. Daisies. All right, folks, that was it for another episode. Thanks, as always, for listening and watching and sending in the pictures. And, of course, please, not pi pictures, please send more dog pictures. We haven't had any for a long time. I think yep. it's just because we stopped asking or for Or if them. you've got fish or parrots or Fa uh, pet pictures in general. Anything. Hamsters. Oh, if you've got a chinchilla. Chinchilla pictures, please. Uh, but otherwise, also send more questions to questions at rado.com. And we'll be back next month. Thank you, everybody. Thank uh, you. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.